Hey, everybody, welcome to the Fluential and Friends podcast, where the story of your life can help somebody else's life story. My name is Joseph Ortiz. I'm here with my very amazing guest today, Leah Allison. How are you doing today, Leah? I'm doing fantastic. Hello, hello, listeners. I know. Check one, two, check one, two. Can yep, everybody check, hear check. us loud and clear? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so for the people who don't know who you are, uh, give us a quick little brief rundown on who you are and what you do. Sure. My name is Leah Elson. I am a clinical development scientist, a nonfiction author, and a public science communicator. That is a mouthful. Yes. <laughs> Multiple <And> titles. <laughs> yes. So a lot of people, they probably heard that. They're probably like, oh, I heard the word science and it sounds very cool. But what does all that mean, right? And so orthopedics, oncology, neuroscience, right? Three very, very cool titles, three that hold a lot of value. And you'll have a lot of people within your industry that usually just stick to one. Yes, I'm a bit interesting. My my research career is entering its 14th year and my topics have kind of meandered as I have tried to discover what it is that I'm really passionate about. I've kind of done my career backwards. So mm -hmm. most people, they go straight through school, undergraduate, and then into their PhD at some point, and then they begin to strike out into their research career. And I actually did mine backwards. I needed to work. I grew up disadvantaged and I needed to amass money to be able to afford tuition and things like that. So I started working at, you know, baseline level as a research assistant back in the day in like 2008 and eventually worked my way up in the ranks and became a scientist and have been now an actual practicing research scientist for many years. And I'm now going back retroactively and finalizing my PhD. Um, so it's, it's been a flip flop, but at the end of the day, I'm, I, we, we all kind of equal out at the same time. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So uh, you talked about like, kind of like a, you know, your, your life growing up a little bit in, in that. And I do want to touch on like, whenever I reached out to you for the podcast, you noticed that my location was in Rancho Cal California. Oh my gosh. We have to tell people <laughs> that story. We, have we to do. <laughs> and so you, you started to freak out a little bit and you're like, oh my gosh, did we go to high school together? And I just have no idea who you are. Yeah, I so hopefully listeners, you can relate to this. I am notoriously awful at remembering names and faces, right? And my boy, Joseph, we we've been friends for a couple of years on social media. And I think mm -hmm. we've reached this interesting part of history and culture wherein internet friends and in real life friends are kind of becoming synonymous, right? Merged together. Yes. They really are. You know, you almost establish sometimes more meaningful connections with people on the internet than you do with people who live down the street or who used to be your old dorm mate or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I was asked to do this podcast and as any dutiful guest would do, I went to your profile to, to learn more about the podcast. I was like, let's see what he's talking about. I want to make sure I'm prepared and bringing something useful to the conversation here. And I see your geotag. It says Rancho Cucamonga. And I panicked because that's where I went to high school. <laughs> and that's a pretty random. It's not like LA, you know, it's a, it's a small right. suburb, but smaller. It's getting bigger. It's massive since I went to high school there, but I immediately panicked. And I was like, oh my God, have me, have, have, have we known each other for like 20 years? And I just don't remember his face. <laughs> like he's, he's a bodybuilder now. Maybe he's just had a glow up and I just don't recognize him. And he was like, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I panicked on this for days and I told my significant other, Aaron, I was like, do I ask him? Because is that rude? If he's like, yeah, girl, like we've known each other. since We were like 14. <laughs> And so I finally asked him, I was like, Hey, let me, let me level with you. Don't take offense to this, but like, do we know each other? <laughs> so it's um, funny. So, so whenever you brought that up, I kind of read the message and I was kind of like pondering it. I was like, should I just, 
should I just fuck with her and just be like, yeah, oh like the, I can't believe you don't remember me. I used, I used to let you copy notes. Yeah, like I would have <laughs> believed it. I would have been like, dude, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But he was, just so you guys know, he was very kind about it and was like, no, no, it's just a coincidence. And I was like, oh, thank God. But I yeah. stressed on it for like four days. And But that's me. a, that's like a strong coincidence. Because where are you located now? I am in Gainesville, Florida. Right. Actually. And it's so other side of the country. So that's like a, a really strong coincidence, right? Like, especially because I have a following, but my following is not extensive, right? It's not like a following, right? Like it's, yeah. it's like a cult following, I would say. Um, and so for somebody to be from that town and just know me, I was like, dude, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Do I know yeah. this cat? And I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I should have so, rolled with it, man. I should, I should have just made it happen. Like you, you don't get a lot of opportunities like that where people like give you oh that, mm, that that good opportunity to to just yeah. make a good joke so thank you for being exceptionally merciful yeah well the thing <laughs> is i needed you to say yes to the podcast and so i was <laughs> like <laughs> if i make her feel you know dumb she's gonna she's definitely gonna say no the hidden, the <laughs> hidden agenda reveals itself <laughs> <laughs> so so did you grow up here in the ie uh, you know, I, I did a lot of jumping around. I think I tried to calculate it many times and I've lived in, I don't know, like over a dozen homes. Um, oh. I, I, my parents, they, they split pretty early. I think I was like five years old. They got divorced. My dad was working a bunch of jobs. So my primary caregiver was with my mother and she and I, I would say have an exceptionally complicated relationship. Um, and that was a, a, tumultuous time in my life. And we, we bounced around a lot. So I was in Riverside for a bit. Um, I was like in kind of that, like Alta Loma rancho area for a while. I would go and see my dad who lived like San Diego area. So I didn't, you know, when people are like my hometown, what do they say their hometown is? Um, mine really isn't where I spent a majority of my childhood because it was so right. varied. So I don't have like, I don't have like a house where I'm like, that's the house I grew up in, right? I have like mm -hmm. a series, a string of areas. Um, so I consider my hometown San Diego because I spent a, a good majority of my, my partial time with my dad there. And then I went to the first part of my college career in San Diego and spent many years there. And so that's always kind of been home to me, I guess, but right. it's not, I'm, I'm very like cheesy, you know, the the wooden board on the wall that says like live laugh love mine would be like home is where your heart is right that's mine. Right. it's not a place <laughs> per se <laughs> yes not a solid actual house exactly yeah. but yeah so high school was decidedly rancho so, so I want to ask you about that so but with you kind of growing up did you have anybody in your family that was academically kind of advanced when it came to anything science absolutely not I, I mean even I, I not even science but like not even academically advanced. Um, mm -hmm. I think my mom may have done like a Tinder swipe period of time through junior college. Like she was, was <laughs> in and out of a class. Um, and then my dad went to the Air Force Academy, but he went there because he wanted to be a pilot. And And the funny story about him is that he actually uh, took a, a chemistry class and like was did so dismally poor. He got like a 23% in his chemistry, his first semester chemistry class. And he like begged the professor to pass him. And he's oh, like, no. he gave him this like patriotic speech about how he wants to fight for his country. And he didn't want this class to hold it back. <laughs> and the professor passed him. Wow. <laughs> like, with a 23%, gave uh, him a C minus. 
do not say that professor's name. <laughs> no, do not. Don't say it's funny because he eventually arose. My dad saw him many years later. He became a commanding officer. Like he was incredibly, uh, this professor was incredibly high ranked in the air force. Mm. And my dad like saw him randomly and like re reminded him of this story. And the guy like laughed and it was, it was like this, this funny thing, but to say that there's no science in my family understatement, my dad hates science, doesn't yeah. understand it whatsoever. So I'm, I'm an anomaly to say the least. <laughs> Out of statistic, for sure. Absolutely. So as you're growing up, when does the love for science kind of start to take hold of you? This was exceptionally early. Um, mm -hmm. I was, and I think to some extent, extent I still am, I was kind of an oddball child. So I didn't really fit in with a group. I never necessarily felt comfortable with a group that I identified with, right? I, mm -hmm. you know, I was always like an outdoorsy kid and stuff like that, but um, you know, I, I was, I was with the, the nerdy kids. They put me in a gate program when I was like nine years old, because I was just eating through my regular courses and becoming disruptive because I would just get my coursework done and then create problems in the back. Um, but I, I always had this love for science. Like I would, uh, I would examine rocks really closely just outside. And I can only imagine how this looked to the other kids in the neighborhood. Right. I'm just like sitting on the sidewalk, looking at rocks or like, I got a hold of brine shrimp and I raised brine shrimp and like studied their developmental stages. Oh right. Gosh. So like when girls my age were like kissing boys behind the bleachers or whatever, like on the mouth, their first kisses, like I could tell you all the taxonomy of dinosaurs in the Triassic era. You know what oh I mean? Like gosh, that yes. kind of <laughs> Typical so for, genius kind of like personality, I guess you can say. Yeah, just just other priorities. You know what I mean? Mm. I was like, I'm I'm here for the science, baby. Like I'm not yeah. here. For, I'm I'm not out here chasing boys. I'm here <laughs> for the science. So it for me, it was really not ingrained in me from any outside force. So I'm not sure what the origin was, but it, I was always curious, always mm. curious about how does this work? What is that? Why is this this color? I always ask questions as a kid. So yeah. So you know, I, I have a son three-year-old boy and he's You're in the Y stage. Yes. And he's in the Y <laughs> stage, but you know, he's in your standard Y stage, you yeah. know, like, Oh, why like, do I have go. to go to bed? Why don't Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So if he ever comes to me and he's like, dad, like, uh, why is the sky blue or why is, you know, why do we breathe oxygen? I'm like, wow, <laughs> let me Google that. Wow, buddy. <laughs> I have a friend named Leah. Let me text her real quick. I'll get an answer for you. But sky is blue because the way the sun hits the, you know, the spectrum, it bends light, makes it look blue. Something. I'm, I'm close. Yeah, you got it. It's, yeah, that's, it's that's something like right. that. That's I actually looked it up. Right. I actually looked it up one time. <laughs> that's so. absolutely right. I'm within the ballpark. Yeah, you got it. Listen, you I, come, come to, come with me. Come and do biotech with me. You're, you're basically there. You got the. You know what? Give me the visitor pass, and I'll be more than happy to like <laughs> do a whole year of biotech. It's it's fun. It's stressful but fun. <laughs> I <should>. bet. I'll <laughs> just be your assistant. You know, wear you know the the glasses and you gotta wear the glasses. And you bow tie. Button up. We'll get a coat on you. You'll look the part. It'll be totally fine. But the crazy Nobody thing is, like, you're like a power lifting scientist. I, I am. I, <laughs> I'm an oddball in that. See, I told you, like, I don't have a, I don't have a niche, right? I'm not yeah. an athlete. I also played sports in college, right? So I, I played my way up through college. I'm not an athlete. I'm not like a dork. I'm kind of all of the above. I'm like, if you put all of those things in a blender and then turn it on high for a while, that's kind of what I became as a human. Or, or in the, or in, in this, you know, conversation, if you put everything in a test tube. <laughs> 
absolutely. Then, you know, if you put it all in a big like redox reaction, that's that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're growing up now. You're playing sports. I do want to go into that, right? So, sure. what, what kind of sports did you did you play growing up? Initially, football with okay. the boys. Wow. Uh, yeah, I had an arm on me and I had hands I could catch. Um, mm -hmm. so I played football with the boys initially. I ran track that evolved as I, I got older and kind of more proficient at sports in general, I became a swimmer and a volleyball player. And I got into that cycle that I see most kids are in these days where I was like in school and playing club back to back. So it was kind of a year round endeavor. And I was so burnt out. I, I was supposed to play at San Diego state volleyball. And I was so burnt out that I was like, eh, and I decided not to do it. And then mm -hmm. I, I had this year where I had been playing sports my whole life. And then suddenly I'm 19 years old with no sports and I'm just going to class. And I was like, what, what do I do with my life? And I walked past the turf fields at San Diego state and the women's lacrosse team was practicing. And I was like, that looks so fun. So I went no and I talked way. to the coach. I sort of got a true story. And, um, and I tried out as like a walk-on and, uh, I, I ended up playing and like, I played defense and I was super rough and I got carded many times, but it was an absolute blast. And that's kind of where I, I ended my career is, is in a sport that I had never played. But the interesting thing about lacrosse is that, you know, I had, I had like a soiree with basketball and I played track and football and all these things. So the coordination and the mechanics were already there, right? Mm -hmm. I already had the kinetics for that sport. It was just yeah. learning how not to foul and what the rules were. Basically, I already had the speed and the hands and the eye coordination. Um, so it was, it was wild. It was super weird. <laughs> I just <laughs> randomly played a sport I'd never played in college. <laughs> That's very, very wild. Yeah. So now you're going to school, you're going to college now. What kind of gets you into the oncology? I know your dad had an issue, right? Yeah. So my, this something that's, I think, pretty uh, unknown about me is that I did not start in science, right? I had this love for science lifelong, um, loved it through college, but actually was sports casting in college. Right. It was something that was, I would say, expected of me when you, when you get to college, you kind of, I think most people have no idea what they're doing. You're kind of taking all these random courses and, you know, possibly binge drinking on the weekends and doing keg stands. And you're just kind of finding your footing. You know, I was also coming from a tumultuous childhood. So I was also kind of finding my freedom. Mm -hmm. And I've always been a ham in front of the camera. I was always athletic and I was always a tomboy. So sports casting is just something that was kind of expected of me. Like, yeah, of course you would do that. Right. So I ended up sports casting and doing some sports writing for the San Diego shockwave, which at the time was the arena football team in San Diego. And I was doing um, a developmental league as well. They were called the Cobras. And uh, then one night my, my dad got diagnosed with cancer and he was about to undergo a pretty radical procedure to resect a big tumor. And I had a, a live casting, you know, and I've got the producer in my ear. He's counting me down. I've got full lights on and I've got the mic in my hand. And I, I have that video somewhere where they're counting me down to live. And you see this moment in my eyes where I'm there, but like I've left the chat, you know what I mean? Like there's this right. kind of blank expression. Um, and in my mind, I was thinking like, what am I doing with my life? You know, because sports casting for me is very intellectually and kind of philosophically bankrupt, you know, like what am I doing for the greater good? It's inter entertainment purely. No, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I didn't feel like I was contributing and watching my dad go through all of this and going through all of these kind of big philosophic changes in my life associated with that. 
um, I was like, this is not for me. And I quit the very next week. I was like, I'm out. And then I just kind of did a period of soul searching. And I ended up volunteering in the ER at the behest of a friend of mine, who's now a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist up in Gainesville of all places. Like we reconvened here by accident. And, um, he was like, I think you should look into medicine. Like you would be really, really good in like science and medicine. And I was like, Oh, okay. And then I loved it. I went into the ER. I was doing overnight volunteer shifts, like holding people down and helping place central lines and like learning how to suture on like drunk people. And I mean, it was amazing and I loved it and I never looked back. And how, how old are you around this time? I was right about to graduate. So my undergrad career was non-traditional science and I was right mm. about to graduate when I made the switch. So I was probably 2021 20, at this time. Mm. Um, so I had already gone through a significant proportion of my undergraduate training at that point and then made the switch. So 2013, you go to Harvard. 20. Yeah. I left Harvard 2013. I was there in 2010. Okay. Got it. So what did you study there? That is where I studied all my pre-medical sciences. So my initial intent was I'm just going to go to medical school. But to do that, you need to have a repository of a particular set of sciences under your belt. You need physics, chemistry, biochem, organic chemistry, biology, right? There's, there's a minimum that you need to prove aptitude in, in order to even apply. And you have to take the MCAT and do all these other extraneous things. Um, and so because I had already almost graduated from San Diego state with this non-science major, I was like, yo, I got to get some sciences under my belt. So yeah. I applied to all these post-baccalaureate programs. Um, some, an advisor was like, just get your weird degree. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have a science degree to apply to med school as long as you fulfill the requirements. And I applied to like all of these programs throughout the country. And one day I get a letter from Harvard in the mail and it's got the Harvard stamp on it. And I was like, and I go to my room and I'm sitting there and I'm like <laughs> shaking and I'm opening it up. And it was like, I actually have it. It's framed on my wall right now. And it's like, congratulations, you've been accepted to the, the pre-health cool. program. And I, I went to Harvard. <laughs> what? Like it's hard. Have you ever yeah. seen Blue Blonde? <laughs> You're like, they wanted me. I didn't really want them, but no the opportunity deal. was there. So I guess. They came after me. Hashtag sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> So from Harvard, you jumped to John Hopkins University. Yes. So I, well, I, I did a brief soiree in med school um, and my dad kind of his health declined at that point. So I went to Harvard, did my pre-medical sciences, kicked the MCAT's ass, got into med school in Florida, did a year in med school, loved it. But then um, there was some health decline with my dad and I took a leave of absence to kind of see what was going to happen. Right. Cause I'm on the other side of the country from pops now at this point. Mm -hmm. And um, that time kind of extended and I got back into research and I'd already established a research career at this point. That was probably maybe six years at the time. Um, and I was like, man, you know, and it's one of those things, again, a, a kind of a, a pivot point in your life. What are you going to do? You know, the first one was sports casting or science. The second one was stay in medicine or continue in upstream medical research. And it just came down to what do I want to do? How can I make a maximal impact with my life? And when you go through medical school and medical training, um, and I know a lot of physicians out there that are listening to this will be like, preach. Um, you don't realize how in the current system, how ineffectual you can, you can be like, you're kind of set up to be ineffectual, right? You have this slammed schedule. You, if you're doing clinical practice work, you're seeing like 15, 20 patients a day. So you're seeing them for 10 minutes at a time. And you're, you're kind of just like on a clock. You're almost like an hourly worker. Um, and there's a lot of dissatisfaction with that. And I thought, you know, 
I already have such a good trajectory in all these publications and research. I can either try to affect 10 people a day and like really make an impact, or I can go into research and I can potentially work on or develop a breakthrough that can help millions of people. Mm-hmm. And so it's always been, where's the maximal impact? Where can I shuttle my skill set? to help as many people as possible. So I settled on that. I was like, I don't have to do residency and take call at 3 a.m. and I can affect a maximal number of people. So I'm gonna veer back into research. So left medical school, but did Hopkins. That's a, I did a master's in biotech. Um, I took like cancer biology courses there, graduate cancer biology and, and things like that. And um, yeah, my, my academic list is like, it, it's so long. Like 95% of my life has been spent in school <laughs> and still going. Yeah. yeah, when I was going over like your, bio, your like life story, yeah Bi- biography yeah i'll say i'll say you were biology. like you were like just, just get out just get out so much debt what are you thinking <laughs> <laughs> i'm like just reading everything i'm like oh that's a cool university that's a cool university oh that's a cool <laughs> school of medicine like oh okay cool uh, um i did like a little bit of uh, community college i guess that's pretty cool i did like one semester listen any any education i'm a proponent of don't if you're out there and you're listening listen the debt is real and don't feel like you need to be like me <laughs> i've done the most i've done the absolute most yeah, I'm sure everybody like in medical medical school right now is hearing this and like they're probably like just curling up into a ball and just knowing that yeah. they'll probably never pay it off. Yeah. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I have a I have a friend who because it, it's such a scary thing, right? You you work so hard to get into to something like medical school, right? And it is ostensibly the most competitive program to get into academically, right? You're talking mm-hmm. like a, I think the annual acceptance rate is like. 13% or something. I mean, it's tiny and that's nationwide, right? And you apply to like 20 schools to just try to maximize your chances to get in anywhere. It's incredibly competitive. Um, and so, you know, you worked so hard and so long and so feverishly to just make it into school. And so making the decision to, to dip out and, and not going back is so difficult, right? Because you're like, oh my God, am I doing the right thing? But I really leaned on a friend of mine who made it all the way through neurosurgery residency and then dipped. And was like, wow. I should have done it earlier. And then he founded a biotech company and he loves life. He's wow. also doing, I think he's doing like glioblastoma or, or some kind of neurocancer research, but just left. And he, so I leaned on him a lot. I was like, please tell me I'm making the right decision, man. And he was like, do it, do it. Like, if you feel like you're going to be happier, just do it. So with you saying like how difficult it is, do you feel like it needs to be that difficult or no, do you think I- they do it purposely just kind of wean people out? So the, the really strange dichotomy with medical training right now is that we are in a massive physician shortage, right. auxiliary healthcare shortage as and well. And that's why, that's why I asked. Yeah. Yeah. So the problem is that they can't really open up medical school class seats until they open up residency positions, right? So it's really kind of predicated on how many residency positions, like, are you going to be able to train the students you graduate and put them into residency. Is there a place for them? So until they open up those those seats, you can't really open up class sizes. But um, you know, we're looking at the last that I saw the the figure was like a ninety thousand nationwide physician shortage, huge. Wow. And the problem is that right now the population at large in the United States, as with many countries in the world, is rapidly aging. Right, the baby boomers 
from World War II, that generation, those babies that were born after the soldiers came home, they're all now retirees. And the problem is that their list of medical complications and comorbidities as they age, obviously they require a lot more medical care. So that massive proportion of the population is now getting older and they need to be seen for insulin. They need to be seen for uh, cardiovascular conditions, for orthopedic complaints all at once, all of them. And so mm. that makes that already overburdened system more taxed every single year. Um, so no, I do not think that, that that's necessary. And I think that when you get to that level of competition, you're splitting hairs among the candidates, right? There are so many equally qualified candidates that don't get into medical school every single year and they end up doing something else. Um, and, or many qualified candidates that get into medical school and leave to go to business because it's too expensive to train. You know, you have like, I think my cost of attendance for my first year of med school was something ridiculous, like $70,000 um, for one year. Right. And yeah. so you have, you have a brain drain where people are leaving medicine to go into fields that actually make them money because they don't want to be saddled with that for the rest of their life. Um, so it's incredibly complex and there's so, there's so many things broken with the healthcare system. I mean, I, we could do a whole podcast episode. We won't. So those of you that have fallen asleep since I've been speaking, don't worry, we won't go into it any more than we have to, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tremendously broken system, both the education component of training future physicians and surgeons, as well as just the way that, that, that labor pool is levied is, is incredibly broken. And, um, like, what's the answer at Adam? No idea. Yeah. So as you have all these physicians that are starting to hit retirement and now you have a new wave of, you know, millennials and Gen Z growing up into a completely different time of day, right? Like it's, it's a completely different world than it was, you know, some years ago where you could make crazy amounts of money doing TikTok dances. Oh my God. And <laughs> now you have somebody who doesn't need to be a physician to, to make uh, a good living right now they could do something on the internet make a make a podcast maybe Ooh, make a podcast <laughs> yeah that might be a good idea Shameless but plug. um weird <laughs> but um you, do you feel like that's only going to create even more of a deficit yeah i mean absolutely be and because I even now with inflation like it's like i'm sure the schooling is only going to get more and more expensive yeah. and then you have you know, we, we just had the whole crazy COVID year where that knocked a lot of students back, right, academically. And it's kind of like, are we ever going to recover from that? Are the people who want to go to medical, medical school even going to think it's going to be worth it financially in the long run? Like there's so many factors that, that play a role in it. It's like on top of it already being as difficult as it is even to get into med school. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many challenges in the future and even just the cost of education, and I, I'm a big activist for, for this topic, the, the cost of education has basically run rampant, right? right. We, we've reached this bubble in, in tuition costs. And the interesting thing is that the uh, professor salaries are not going up with that cost. And there aren't, you know, at San Diego State, like there weren't new buildings being built or professors being hired or anything like that. But suddenly over the course of like two years, our tuition went up by like 30%. Mm -hmm. um, and it was there, there was no real reason for it. And so there are a lot, there's a lot of like, I would say politics and probably seedy deals and a lot of people making a lot of money on 
college education and, and beyond. Um, so there's really no, nothing has changed, right? Medical curriculum has not changed. It's been pretty static and it needs to be. So that's the interesting thing as well is that for board certification and the certification of the school, everything is very tightly regimented. So every school across the country, a medical school, whether you're an MD or a DO, um, you have to teach very specific subject material. And it, I mean, it is specific by a book. And yet, you know, the cost at one university could be 5,000 times higher than another university. I mean, actually, honestly, or like NYU has made all of its tuition completely free for its medical students. And yet you have private schools like the one I went to where cost of attendance is like $70,000, $90,000 um, for the exact same education, mm -hmm. which is wild. Where's that money going? I to somebody's Bugatti. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's the big question, right? Really? So as, as tuition prices go up and the price for, and the, you know, costs or the payout for professors isn't, do you feel like that these scientists, professors should be getting kind of recognized and paid on the same level as pro athletes? Cause we see people like or like I follow like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Dr. Hu uh, Huberman. No, I know we, yeah, I know we talked about Dr. Huberman a little bit too uh, about his podcast. He's very popular now. Uh, you have Dr. Walker, which is like the sleep scientist. Like we have these big name scientists out there that are also professors at their respected universities. And then you have even someone like you who's out there putting out all this crazy good information. Do you think that'll be the perfect carrot to draw people into the medical field is by paying and recognizing people like as if they were a pro athlete? Like when someone comes out with a new study, it's on the news as being recognized or getting paid the big bucks now. Like imagine that the influx of people enrolling into medical school, if that was kind of the reward at the end of it. Yeah. So right now, the split of pay among physicians, those that are hyper-specialized tend to get paid a lot more. So mm -hmm. if you are say like an orthopedic surgeon who's highly specialized, maybe working in a partnership at a high volume practice, you are making easily 700,000. If you've got patents, maybe over a million dollars a year. Um, but then you look at like a family med physician after malpractice insurance take home is less than hundred K. I yeah, mean, it's very huge. Because the thing is, you'll have like baseball players making 600 million for 10 years. Right, right. You did, like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, imagine something like that. Like, if there was a way we could, like, mainstream scientists on this type of, like, academic playing field and actually have, like, I mean, I, I'm just bracing for the idea as I'm talking about it. <laughs> let, me, let me write this down. Hang on. I know, right? I'm like thinking like stadium of people with scientists, but like, like, man, like the people who win like the Nobel Pri the prizes, right? It's like, mm -hmm. imagine they got like even better recognition because like who, who won it in the last year or the last five years, last 10 years, last 20 years, like you don't hear about this type of stuff. It's kind of, it's very respected within the science community, but for the average person, I feel like it should be way more out there of all these big kind of like, outbreaks that are happening. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that, that there, there's a, there's a problem. Would do I, do I think so? Sure. I mean, am I biased? Course, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wish I was making 50 mil. Are you kidding me? That'd be amazing. Of course. I wish I had a shoe deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, scientists, the first scientist must buy Nike. Come on. Exactly. Just do it and just test tubes. Um, so one interesting thing is that 
right now, uh, because one of my many titles is a public science communicator. And one of the things that I've been doing is that I, I never thought I would be an activist, but I have very slowly over the course of that career become an activist. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is that no longer am I simply entertaining people by giving them interesting science facts. I have now found that I am on the side of cleaning up collateral damage from massive public distrust in the sciences. A lot of this is stemming from the public's misinformation and misguided interpretation of scientific facts that come out. One of the things that I'm doing is desperately trying to combat misinformation and pseudoscience, which spreads incredibly rapidly via social media. Mm -hmm. Um, And there has been a lot of COVID fallout with Fauci, uh, people who saw Fauci kind of rescind some of his earlier and recant some of his earlier evaluations of how COVID would pan out. The public was under this impression that Fauci just had no idea what he was doing. Like, oh, well, he said one thing and then he came back and he said another thing that's completely incorrect. But what the public doesn't understand is that science is meant to capitalize on its own underpinnings and its own discoveries. So Fauci and many other scientists who were studying COVID were watching this this virus is not really an organism, it's not a living organism, but this um, entity, this biological entity evolved. We were learning more about it through clinical studies and epidemiologic studies. And it is meant to transform, right? And so what Fauci should have said, he should have said, based on information that we currently have, this is the information that we can comfortably say, which may be subject to change based on new studies, and it may be subject to updates. Right. Then he came back out and he recanted a lot of his statements without letting the public know this is an unfolding crime scene, right? This kind of happens. Exactly. This is, this is normal. This is typical, right? So then it created this massive public backlash. And the unfortunate part is that the scientists have been levied as a political villain. And now I, myself and other public science communicators are desperately trying to clean up that collateral damage. And to now not only, which my, when I first started science communicating was probably about five years ago, when I first started, it was, Hey, here's a bunch of fun science facts. And you guys are asking me questions and I'm answering you with a weird staccato cadence in 60 seconds. And now it's become a lot of activism for this is the way that the scientific method works. This is the way that theories become theories. Um, this is what Fauci should have said, but was really politically unprepared to make these grand statements to a scared nation and a scared world. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I mean, I think that would the public accept scientists being paid like professional athletes at this point? No. Um, and I think that's just because we have been villainized, right? Every Every generation forges its villain for political gain, right? World War II, it was Nazis, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in in our modern time, a lot of those political villains have been people in Muslim cultures, right? Because of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they've been used as political pawns. But now, interestingly enough, uh, we are starting to tear ourselves apart. And a lot of the people catching flack are those of us in the scientific community. Um, So it's, uh, it's been definitely a tenuous time. For us, and I, I definitely answered way more philosophically than you were asking. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine. I mean, but but it's all it's all true though, right? And you guys got villainized very quick, very, 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 very quickly, right? 
Um, and I so, actually, but- personally, I, I was one of the, uh, I, I was employed at Cleveland Clinic and we, I was in the oncology center, right? And I, I had direct exposure to patient rooms and things, people who have basically no immune system left because they're being hit with chemotherapy drugs and things like that. So right. I was one of the first rounds of people to receive the COVID vaccine. And I knew that there was public fear about the COVID vaccine. And so I made uh, a public post and I was like, guys, I'm getting the COVID vaccine today. I know you're scared. This is what it means. And unfortunately, there was so much misinformation that had already been spread that I got a ton of backlash from that post. I can only and imagine. It was me just like, you know, trying to play like like the analogy is like duck hunter, you know, in a bar. And I'm like trying to shoot down all of these things. <laughs> with actual science. And the unfortunate thing is that the, you know, the, the backlash I was receiving was the most wild ideas. Like, I'm not going to let them put a chip in me and I'm not, you know, I don't want the government tracking me. And I'm like, I hate to tell you, but you got a phone in your pocket. The government's already tracking you. Like it's right. And second of all, like, I also hate to tell you, but from somebody who's been in like novel biotechnology, the syringes are clear and the needles are very small and we don't yet have the clout to make a microchip that small. I'm so sorry. Like we don't, I appreciate that you think we're that brilliant, but we're not yet. And the same people are the ones that are like on like Instagram with their face all over the internet and they're putting their geolocation. And I know, I know it's so wild. And And I understand. And I, you know, I it the the thing is that and the thing i try to rally to my colleagues in the sciences is that unfortunately it has created a very i want to say confrontational dynamic between the public and scientists you know scientists have kind of turned their back on the public as well and they've been like you know what i've dedicated my entire life to serving the public and this is how they mm-hmm. treat me then you know what whatever fine and unfortunately i chide those scientists and i say it is your job. If the public does not understand your science, it is your job to educate them. And if you can't do it in a way that is palpable to the the general public, which the general public in the US, the average reading level is sixth grade reading level. If you can't break your science down to a sixth grade reading level, then you don't know it well enough. You Mm -hmm. don't know your own science well enough. And that a lot of that I think is the responsibility of my colleagues. Um, And it's, a movement that I think a few of us are trying to create from within to be like, you foster the conversation because somebody with a sixth grade reading level, who's just scared and trying to provide for their family and protect their family. Like they're, they're not, they don't know how to break this down. It's your responsibility to make them less scared. And unfortunately it's, it hasn't gone that way and they're still kind of head butting, but um, hopefully it will rectify soon now that COVID is kind of an endemic and is just among us now forever. Hopefully it will settle out. Right. But I think the one thing that made it even more confusing was you had doctors going after other doctors as well, right? So it wasn't even just the general public. You also had other doctors that were kind of like, oh, well, this does work. We could treat it naturally, you know, and you had them, you know, on social media, you had them on the news and they're kind of fighting with other doctors. So that's what made even more confusion, right? And then it kind of created the mob mentality where you had a group of people that were with this group of doctors and the other people that were this group of doctors. Yeah. And what's really confusing for the public is that, you know, that is all orchestrated by the media machine, right? They want to find polarizing opinions to put on screen because that is views. Views are money for these media Mm -hmm. outlets. And when, you know, so you see that as a, as a person who's, you know, blue collar working a nine to five and you're like, man, this doctor and this doctor, and they're going at it and the doctors don't even know what they're doing. 
But what they don't realize is that doctor who is opposing this regiment is like one of maybe a fraction of a percent of doctors in the nation who actually believe that. But right. it's just that the people that were casting for that episode- giving them a platform. Found, yeah, exactly. And, the, and mm. those platforms. And then, and before social media may not have had much traction, but social media, anything spreads like wildfire and then gets misconstrued. And then people bend the truth and bend the science. Or you have people, which makes me furious, that go on and, and their handle will be like, Doctor, and this is nobody in particular making up a name, Dr. Martha yeah. Johnson. Dr. Martha Johnson is an anti-vaxxer and doing all these things. And then when you look into her background, she's like a doctor in like anthropology and studied like basket weaving from like Mesopotamia. And you're like, why are you even weighing in? Like you're not a yeah. real, you know? and she got her and she got her doctor in six months. Yeah. And then everyone's right. like, well, this doctor, and you're like, Yeah, but she that's just she's just playing you like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. People, I don't think people realize that you could get doctors in that type of stuff. Yeah, like, you know, a, a PhD, like you still are a doctor, right? Because you're a specialist mm -hmm. in your field. And oftentimes right. you're the only specialist in the world studying what you are because you're so hyper-focused in your thesis. But people will use it as their handle and then unfortunately have an opinion. And then people will start sharing that post and be like, see, this doctor said that. And I'm like, dude, she studied underwater basket weaving from 2000 BC. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> so... All right. So I do want to kind of move on from, because obviously, like you said, like the whole COVID thing could be a whole episode on it on its own. A whole right? episode. And I will hijack this podcast if you don't reroute me. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me just take my headphones off and I'll walk yeah. away. I'll, I'll be um, back in 10 minutes. Yeah. I want to continue that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a tangent kind of gal. So you got to Now you get a taste of what my significant other lives with. So now you guys can <laughs> be like, bro, she won't stop. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna segue away a little bit from the whole science thing. I do want to talk about how you kind of tried out for the Titans show from Dwayne Johnson, right? Yeah, the NBC Titan game. So the fun the funny story about this is that social media is such a strange place. So I've been reached out to by casting producers for A&E for a science show that ultimately didn't go anywhere. Like that, that project didn't get picked up. Um, and then this casting producer reaches out to me from NBC. And, you know, it's in my message requests and he's like, Hey, like this is so-and-so from, I'm a casting producer at the NBC Titan games. Like we would love to have you. We think you'd be a great candidate. We'd love to have you apply. Cause at the time I was still putting like workout videos online. I hadn't really mm -hmm. kind of streamlined my page to being mostly science content. And I literally responded and I was like, bro, with all due respect, this sounds like, this sounds like a scam. <laughs> you know, you gotta give me some kind of <laughs> actual clout or objective evidence to prove that this is a real message and he did he was like no this is me like here's me outside of the studios right now <laughs> and i me was with like rock yeah i was like what and it was so wild and i was like okay so he called me and i had an interview like a just like this like a zoom interview and they kind of asked me about powerlifting and my background in sports. And um, I think mostly they liked the story, right? The story I told you earlier, like I'm just kind of this weird hodgepodge scientist that also lifts, that also is a pit bull mom that does all these things. Um, and uh, they liked it. And so they asked me to put it in an official application. It was extensive <laughs> and I did sent them a, a video. And I heard later on that Dwayne, he handpicked all of us. Dwayne actually really liked my entry video because it was very silly and off, like it was out of pocket. Like I, yeah. I had one of my colleagues uh, at the, the oncology center, he was filming me and I was like, do I, I did box jumps onto my desk in heels and like so ridiculous <laughs> as I was like explaining science, it was so stupid. It was ignorant. 
but uh so yeah so they called they called me after like a three or four month application process and they're like hey we'd love you to come down to LA for the combine and I was stoked I was like what because there I mean there were thousands of people that applied for the show they they cold reached out to me and um I was one of 15 women that went to the combine and you walked into this this warehouse and there were 15 women 15 men and uh, they, they had all these cameras and it looked like a big Hollywood studio. They had turf set up and climbing ropes and treadmills and like tires and all kinds of stuff. And um, they, uh, they had all these cameras in your face and like Jay Leno drove by filming his show and we all waved at Jay Leno. It was super weird. Very cool. Um, but yeah, and uh, crazy enough. So I, I didn't get picked and um, I was like, that's cool. You know, whatever. I guess I'm like an alternate or whatever in the background. And uh, I, I made a post about it when the Titan Games was released. And I was like, hey, guys, you may not have known. And I had a gag order. I couldn't talk about it. But I was at the Combine for the Titan Games this year. And I have the message saved. I will never get rid of it as long as I live. The Rock responded to it. And he was like, it was such a great group this year, wasn't it? And I'm, like, he wrote me like a pretty long message. And I was wow. like, I know this man has no time. And I know he manages his own social media. <laughs> so I reposted it. And I, that was like the highlight. Like, honestly, the rest of my life will be downhill from that moment. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson responded to me. <laughs> he, man, he probably sent you like a video from the, you know, the up angle that he always records from. Yeah, literally. He's, He's like, I'm like, oh, just here at the Iron Paradise. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Leah, The Rock here to let you know, I want to thank you for coming on and trying out for the Titan Games. <laughs> You're the hardest worker in the room, girl. <laughs> just, I mean, it was definitely a surreal experience. It was so fun. And the, the fun thing is that I talked to so many of those athletes. It was, we spent three days together and um, it was such a sort of like, catalyzing experience because it's such a weird thing and we're from all corners of the country but they really selected a very particular personality type so we all got along really well and I talk I talk to them all all the time like some of my best friends now I would say contemporarily they came from that show it's it's bizarre very cool it's so cool I love that so as we're kind of going through now and <clears throat> what are other kind of the hobbies that you kind of that, that you kind of tend to now day to day like besides the whole science like i know you like to do some surfing some backpacking uh what other kind of hobbies are you into yeah i I think because i'm so cerebral for my two careers right and all related to science everything that i do when i go on vacation outside that we're going outside so Mm -hmm. obviously grew up in southern california so i surf and i backpack for multiple days i just like get out there covered in dirt and leaves and bugs and i love it uh, I rock climb and I've got a, like a custom made longboard. So, you know, I like street carve on my longboard with my dogs. I ran the, um, Miami marathon and I got done and I was oh. like, I'm going to eat five, uh, hamburgers and I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever done like the Spartan runs? No, I, I did, uh, I did like a bootleg one that was yeah. like super short and it was just kind of like a local thing. That was like, happening. Just like a mud run or something like that. Yeah. You know, like they hit yeah. us with like spray paint and like we swam through ice water and like that kind of stuff, you know, and it, mm. it was put on, I think probably by like the local city of commerce or something like that. Right. Um, and, uh, but no, I, I never did a Spartan race mostly because I mean, like this shouldn't surprise anybody. Like if I'm powerlifting, I obviously hate cardio. So <laughs> who among us doesn't um but yeah so i i've never done big races i would love to but then again i'm also like ah you know chilling chilling is actually pretty tight too so (laughs) (laughs) you're like staying at home and like watching tv yeah i can that's that alone could be a marathon as well there's different types of marathons you can do 
Oh my God. Yeah. And I, you know, I never, I, I didn't have a TV for like probably 10 years because this was the the period where I went from Harvard to Hopkins doing research. I, I was working multiple jobs simultaneously. So I had no time. So I just never had a TV and now I do. And I'm like, yo, this is super, super <laughs> sick. Like, <laughs> I just become like, I work out on the weekends, get my stuff done. And then I'm like, what are we watching? Let's yeah. watch something. This is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have one TV in the house. Like we want to like put one in our, like our, and you know, our bedroom, put one in my, my son's room, but we have, we have one in the house and my son pretty much hijacks all the time. So it's like, it's like Coco watching, Melon. I was just going to say like, Coco Melon. Yeah. Blippy, like this YouTube guy, like it's as yeah. usual what's now on, on our TV. Yeah. And, then, and then whenever he goes to bed, we just want peace and quiet. So we don't have the TV on. So, you know what? So there's actually studies that suggest that if you are watching TV in your bedroom, it's actually more difficult to fall asleep because the blue, the blue frequency, light. yeah, yes. it, it actually uh, impedes the circadian rhythm and it, it basically keeps your, your body awake. It's like, Hey, we're being exposed to blue light. So it's, it's still time to be wakeful. Um, so it's, it's actually, you guys should just say, just keep the one. Yeah. TV. Yeah, it prevents the melatonin production from happening because your your eyes cannot filter the blue light. Listen, get get mm. your button up, get your white coat. I'm, I'm telling it. you, I'm bringing you to work with me. Let's look at this! It. Look at this! I got the blue light glasses yeah. here. Mm. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm secretly a nerd too. If you guys aren't watching, he's fully nerded out right now. Mm -hmm. If you can't I'm see this, <laughs> I'm telling you, I like behind behind closed doors. I'd be doing Just some studying. I research. Like the reverse Clark Kent, right? Like <laughs> your superpower is putting the glasses on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> See, like, uh, like I love the whole science life too, but I'm a lot more fascinated with like space. Like, especially when I was a kid, I was like, what's yes. out there? What, what yeah. are the stars made of? Like yes. how big is the universe? Are there multiple universes? Like, and then you see things like like space dust and you compare it to stuff here on earth it looks identical to it i'm like it's, it's like man i always said if i had to do it again and i know now what i what i know but <clears throat> then whatever however that saying goes uh if i knew then what i know now and i had to go back i would do astrophysics i mm. half of my bookshelf is is space i love it like you talked about neil degrasse tyson that's my boy like that's why i, I follow him because i love I, that stuff I love him and like Michio Kaku and all the theoretical physicists, like rock stars in public science communication. And it's fascinating. I love space. I could dedicate 18 episodes to just space. <laughs> so coming from you on record, do you believe there's other life forms out there? Absolutely. There you go. Done. Absolutely. There, the, the sheer statistics are just mm -hmm. staggering. And here's the, here's the wild part. If I, I'm going to bake your listeners noodle right now, we cannot yet confirm nor deny that there are even life forms in our own solar system. We just don't know yet. There mm -hmm. are so many fantastic candidates in our solar system to harbor life that have the essential ingredients to house life as we know it, carbon-based life. Right. right. And, and that's, an, that opens up a whole nother can of worms. You can't just go non-discriminately non looking for life, right? Because you're like, I don't know, how am I supposed to know what I don't know what I'm looking for, right? Right. So we use our own metrics. We're like, okay, cool. Well, we know that life can start carbon-based. We know that, you know, life needs liquid water because that's where we live. So we'll look for what we look like because we know what we look like, right? Mm -hmm. But then you get into the whole philosophic spaghetti of, yeah, but there could be life that just 
is invisible that just floats around space like tardigrades can survive the vacuum of space that is a carbon-based animal that is on earth that can survive space open space and And for people who don't know those things are so small you can't see with your naked eye microscopic animals tardigrades look them up little bears little bears right they're little chunky they've got little chunky rolls they look you know when when your when your baby was like six months he probably had like rolls on rolls right that's what (laughs) they look like They've got uh-huh. six six legs and little claws on their feet, and they've got like a big trumpet nose, and uh, and they can survive incredible temperatures. They can survive being boiled in alcohol. They can survive the vacuum of space. And so there is um, there's a, a theory called panspermia that is we're still trying to decide how did life just start on Earth, right? There was kind of this weird explosion of life, sort of over the grand timeline of things that came out of nowhere. Um, panspermia is a theory that it was seeded here from an asteroid, right? There was a piece that broke off of something that had life on it. And then as it co- crashed into the earth, it kind of seeded on earth, right? It, and we would need to find an organism robust enough to survive burning up in our atmosphere, surviving the vacuum of space. And the one that we found, tardigrades, have survived all five extinction events, have been around for billions of years, mm. are little badasses. They actually have shot tardigrades out of a cannon and they've survived that. Wow. They, sh- they shot them out of a cannon on into sandbags and they were like, yeah, whatever. They frozen them for like decades and they wake them up and they just start eating. Like they're, they're Find unbothered, nothing. the most hmm. unbothered animal in the entire animal kingdom. Indestructible. So pans, panspermia, we might come from tardigrades. Is there a way we can like extract that DNA, put it into human DNA, just kind of make us invulnerable? So interesting you say that. They actually, mm. they have been, I think we, we have, have now we we have to have the entire genomic sequence of a tardigrade but they study them so intimately i mean there are entire teams dedicated to tardigrade genetic robustness to see like why is it that they're so strong and impervious to everything Mm -hmm. for potential i mean we're a long way away from that but potential applications in human medicine how do we make humans more robust because right the biggest thing that we have to contend with right if you weren't worried about nuclear war in the next few years um is, is being able to survive our own planet, right? Because mm. we, this planet at some point will get swallowed up. It will get destroyed just by degradation of the, the solar system alone if we survive that long and don't kill each other. Um, so we would have to survive leaving planet, right? So we need to figure out how can we make humans more robust to do such a thing, right? Do we upload our consciences into computers and travel off that way like robots? Mm-hmm. That's something that people are trying to do if some crazy people off the records haven't already done it in the Eastern Bloc and in China. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised either. So I love the whole asteroid thing, right? Because that, that was like the theory for like about three or four years ago about octopi, right? Mm-hmm. Right? That they came from an asteroid. And because, I mean, those things are crazy. And smart. I freak out whenever I see an octopus because so they're so smart. weird and they camouflage to their environment. They have like five brains or something like that, like something crazy. There And there's a, a cool story about one. I believe he was housed at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So the, the keepers of the aquarium, they came in and they noticed in multiple tanks, there were fish just disappearing. And they were I know like, this what? story, but I'll let you finish. Yeah. <laughs> For the listeners, there, are, there were multiple fish in multiple tanks just disappearing. Nowhere to be found. They couldn't find the actual bodies of them. They weren't dying. They checked the water levels. Everything was good. And so they put up uh, surveillance. And they started watching and they saw that in an adjacent tank, an octopus was able to find his way out of the tank, crawled down the sides of his tank, walked across the floor, crawled up the other tanks and snuck into the other tanks, ate the fish 
and then got back in his tank before they opened up the aquarium the next day before people shift started because he knew that if he was caught red-handed red tentacled in the other tanks <laughs> it was game over he was busted so he would actually go back to his own tank so they would never know how crazy would it have been if he actually like went and disassembled the camera <laughs> Yeah, the next step. <laughs> and then reassembled it afterwards and got back into his tank. Just puts on a little ski mask and just <laughs> spray paints the camera lens. <laughs> so, so, so number two, I wanted to talk about when you mentioned, when you mentioned the asteroid is how we did the dart um, test not too long ago. And I was, so I was watching that video, right. And I was looking at the did screenshots. I know I didn't see it live. I've seen it right after. Okay. But um, I watched the video and then I was looking at the pictures and I was like zooming in so hard on the asteroid because I was like, what if coincidentally this was like an asteroid that had like eggs on it or something like that? Like, <laughs> or a little guy that's like, hey. yeah. And we didn't, we just didn't see it. Like, I'm, I'm that type of guy. Or like, whenever they upload like a new Mars picture from like the rover, I'm yeah. always like zooming in all crazy, looking to the background, hoping I see something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I yeah. love that stuff. Oh, no, you've, you've got to. And there's so many funny, like, you know, the, the rock formations that look like a face on Mars. You know what I mean? Like, yes. you, the human or pyramids. Eye, they call that a pareidolia when the human eye and the human brain will try to take make things familiar. Yeah. Like a random pattern and make it look like a face, a human face. Mm-hmm. Cause it's, it's something that we can relate to. And so people love finding like Aaron, you know, he loves science, not classically trained in the sciences, but always asks me questions. And he's like, yeah, but yeah, like you've seen that Ant- Antarctica face, right? Like that's a face. And I'm like, babe, that's I agree. That's 100% a face. Uh, yeah. 100%. It's a face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you guys can totally talk about the face in Antarctica and make a whole episode about that. He loves it. He's like, you can't mm-hmm. tell me that's not a face. <laughs> you know, what, man, I follow this page. It's called a uh, Secure Team Ten, and it's like a guy who like he just goes over all these alien anomalies that happen throughout the world. And I went down a rabbit hole on his YouTube. Oh my gosh, you could be on that page for hours. Uh, his stuff incredible. is so good, though. That's incredible. Gives me a headache. <laughs> I, I mean, I listen, I'm a classically trained scientist. I've been trained in Ivy League institutions and, you know, have however many years under my belt, but I still love ancient aliens. Yes. I will still, I love that show. I know, I know it's garbage, but it's so yes. entertaining. <laughs> so entertaining. <laughs> I mean, they just make it sound so good. Like I love the episodes about Nikola Tesla when they talk about him. Oh my gosh. That guy, what he's, you know, what a, what a personality you find that socially there's, there's something that we haven't unpacked yet about the, the mind of true genius, right? Mm-hmm. Where I think that there is like frontal lobe inactivity and there's a shuttling. Cause that's in the frontal lobe of your brain, right? Where your forehead is behind that part of your skull. Uh, is the processing center for human emotion, human empathy, things like that. So when they do like fMRIs, which are functional MRIs, you can actually see the brain in real time lighting up as the the person that's being observed is undergoing stimuli. Uh, fMRIs in like serial killers, you'll see that the frontal lobe where all the empathy and everything transpires is completely dark. It, it doesn't really function well. Cold. Cold. Um, so it doesn't don't have the ability to process that that kind of empathetic emotion. Uh, but that's, and, that's what makes a serial killer too. Right, exactly. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, you look at somebody like Nikola Tesla, who has this bizarre back, like what a bizarre man. I love learning about him, but didn't have, was like completely non-functional socially. And I always think that those neural transmissions are being shuttled into process-oriented transmission and objective mm. data processing rather than social connection to, to human beings, right? Like mm-hmm. he- if you guys don't know about Nikola Tesla, like he fell in love 
Well, one, he said that human women, he would never be with a woman because they would just distract him from his research, which preach, I, I get it. Like <laughs> man is dedicated to a science. Facts. Can't Facts. Um, but he fell in love, actually fell in love with a pigeon that he had tamed and the end of his life, like the pigeon ends up dying, right? Like this pigeon had, had come to his windowsill. He slowly tamed it over the course of many weeks, fed it bread and things and got it to come into his room and it would fly back to him every day. And he wrote in his diary at length about how he was in actual romantic love with this pigeon and like wow. felt a connection unlike any, any organism he'd ever felt before. The pigeon ends up dying, right? Because they don't live too long. The pigeon ends up getting sick and dying with him in the room. He is so heartbroken and so devastated that not long thereafter, he also ends up dying. Um, and there is um, something called uh, Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy. We call it uh, like basically like heartbreak disease. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's like a great deal of stress on your heart, kind of like frazzles your heart a little bit, makes your heart a bit friable. And uh, that it, it kind of presents like a heart attack, but it's not, it's almost like a, like a false heart attack. And even though it's not deadly, in some cases it can be very rarely, it can be quite dangerous. Um, so, you know, you have to wonder like, did he suffer some kind of like actual pathologic heartbreak? Wow. Um, from this pigeon, but yeah, the, the man, Nikolai Tesla, one of the, the most brilliant minds in all of human history, fell in love with a pigeon that he tamed wow. on his windowsill. Yeah. That's, um, I never heard that story that could also, um, kind of degrade someone's, um, personality, I guess you can say. Yeah. When you're like pent up in your, in your, uh, I think he was renting a hotel room. He was just in a, a random hotel room paying per day just by yourself with a pigeon writing about, you know, harvesting electricity from the air and <laughs> trying to save the world. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it probably yeah. wears on you a little bit. You know, he just wanted to give people free energy. Bless him. Yeah. He Bless tried. You, he did his best. <laughs> I, I love his stories. Yeah. So um, you have your own podcast as well. The I string do. theory podcast. How I know the string theory itself is an actual theory. Mm-hmm. Please explain what the string theory is and how that goes perfectly with the podcast you have with your significant other, Erin. Yes. So string string theory is oh boy. All right, here we go. Here's my I know right here to take to take <laughs> quantum physics and explain it rapidly for an audience. So uh, there is the physics that we know in day to day, right? The physics of throwing a baseball or watching planets orbit around the sun, right? These are, this is the physics of the very large, and this is derived from Einstein's um, general relativity, right? It makes sense to us. We're like, oh, I'm gonna throw this baseball. It's gonna go a certain distance. It's gonna come back down due to gravity. All of the things that we observe, right? The Newtonian physics of the world that we see, that we know, that we love, that we depend on, that we like fall off a ladder and break our hips to, that's all based on big physics. Now, Big physics don't stack up when you get into like the subatomic level, right? right? There's a lot of really weird, quirky things, right? There's the Bohr model of the atom. And you guys probably made an atom when you were in junior high, right? Out of like jello and macaroni. And they were like, make an atom. And you made little electrons. And you were taught that electrons kind of circle the nucleus in these, these orbitals, right? But that's not actually the way that it works. Electrons don't circle in, in discrete orbitals, like they're on a track, they kind of ping in and out of existence. Like they kind of are and aren't at the same time. So there's all these really weird, quirky, non-intuitive aspects of physics that occur at the very, very small. And 
we are trying very hard to rectify the physics of the small with the physics of the large. Cause right now they do not jive together. Mm-hmm. You try to explain physics of the large using physics of the small, it doesn't work vice versa. It doesn't work. So what we're looking for in all of physics is called the grand unifying theory. And that is a mathematical equation that one side of the equation is small, one side of the equation is large, and they both equal each other. It balances out because if we do not have that theory, that's really scary for physicists because that means that either general relativity and the way we understand the very large is wrong or what we're perceiving at the very small is wrong. Something in physics is wrong and scientists don't like to be wrong, right? That's terrifying. Terrifying because that means that the way we're observing the universe, something is wrong and we're, we don't know what the picture is. That basically you got one chink in the armor, that whole thing falls away. So the grand unifying theory is something that we're trying to come up with to make sure that these two things coincide together and that Makes we can sense. explain our world in totality. Mm-hmm. String theory is an attempt to do this where basically um, subatomic particles the way that they are, if they're, you know, quarks, bosons, things like this, they're determined by the vibration of these little teensy, tiny, itty bitty little strings, right? Um, these strings are embedded in something called a brain. And this is kind of part of possibly the fabric of space-time. We don't know, but these strings resonate at certain frequencies. So you resonate it in a particular frequency, then you might eventually create a proton. You resonate it in another frequency, you might eventually create a neutron or an electron. It's what is composing all of the tiniest, tiniest particles, right? And from a macro perspective, that doesn't make sense to you. That's fine. Because if you say you understand string theory, you don't understand string theory. Like even string theorists don't understand string theory. But what's weird about string theory is that if you are a person who is into the whole, this is uh, this whole thing is just a computer program, this is going to bake your noodle. So mm. string theory can potentially be looked at in like a binary way, right? All coding in computer programs is based on ones and zeros, right? This is binary coding. Um, strings can be possibly open or closed strings, right? So there's two maybe fundamental states of them where you have this, let's call it like, um, like carpeting, right? You look down, there's individual carpet fibers. One of those carpet fibers might be a little loop. So each end is connected into the carpet. That's a closed loop. And then one might be free. There might just be like one string hanging out. It's only connected at one end. So you've got two states, a closed loop and an open end. So depending upon like the binary strings and how they're resonating together, like a binary code, that's what's programming your subatomic particles, which dictate your atoms, which dictate your matter, which dictate what you're composed of, which dictate us, which makes planets, which makes everything go around. That's what string theory. So that's like the explanation of everything, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of holes in string theory. A lot of people like, especially like 40, 50, 60 years ago, like Einstein hated it, was like, I hate this. This is terrible. Like this is ridiculous physics. Um, but there's been more and more support because a lot of the mathematical equations are coming out and making sense. And people are starting to like lock on, like maybe they're strings, maybe they're embedded in, in space time. Maybe it's resonating in this binary code. Maybe we are just a big computer simulation. So that's like some of the, the oddball physics stuff, but the string theory podcast. (laughs) Well, I want to touch on, because I know the government they released something, I believe one or two years ago, saying that we might possibly be living in a simulation. There's actual like there's an actual government document that, that suggests that that might actually be true. I mean, there's so many. So if if you guys are if you're looking for good book recommendations, I ha- very frequently have people reach out to me like, please tell me what you're reading. I would love to. Yeah. Read. Um, Brian Green 
is a quantum theorist and um, he does a lot of like quantum physics work. And he's one of the kind of pioneers that has been continuing to champion string theory. He writes a lot of books about like parallel universes and extra dimensions and, and talks about what that means. Oh, it's, it's amazing. I love yeah. his stuff. Um, so, you know, he talks a lot about what, what would parallel universes look like? What are the implications of that? Are we a simulation? Is the universe finite? Is it infinite? We, we may never know. We may never have the, the capacity to ever know. And both are equally scary. Both are equally scary. And what's even crazier to me is that the observable universe that we know of, that we've mapped out, the operative word there is observable universe, right? That means that it's only a patch of universe that we can observe. And the fabric of space-time of that universe is expanding rapidly. It's actually accelerating. So over time, all of the galaxies around us, they're all splitting at an expanding, accelerating rate. And there is a horizon of our observable universe whereby galaxies that dive past that, we will never be able to see again. We will never know in the future that they existed. And so you have to imagine that at some point, billions of years from now, there will be observers like us looking up into the sky and they're going to see very few galaxies Nothing. and they will never know that galaxies will have ever existed in the sky. Wow. Like we've seen them. And so that's crazy like that because that the rate at which it's accelerating beyond the speed of light. So if that light cannot reach our eyes, we can't detect it. And so once that light dips beyond that horizon, we will never know that it existed again. We just will never be able to make technology that breaches space time because that's a direct or um, the speed of light, because that's a direct violation of physics. We, we can't, that's our universal speed limit. So no matter how advanced we get, we will never know, which means that the, the universe is 14 billion years old or thereabouts. There were probably so many galaxies and things around us, even before now that we never will know have existed. Just never, we'll never know. That blows my fucking mind. Just to make people feel more insignificant <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> on how small we really are. <laughs> So if you weren't having an existential crisis post-COVID, there you go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So is the moon a superstructure? Mm. Uh, you know, honestly, the, the gravitational exertion that the moon puts onto things like our oceans and creates tides, if it were a superstructure, it, its mass would be exceptionally low. And I just don't think we would be experiencing that same kind of gravity yeah. that we are now. It's just odd how it's, it's in the perfect position all the time, and we never see the backside of it. Never <laughs> so rotates. The the that uh, phenomenon is called tidal locking, and that's actually we can see that in a lot of different systems. A tidal lock where you only see it's the same face that rotates, and you only see that same side uh, into perpetuity. Um, or that's have, what they want you to think. That, that's what, <laughs> listen, hang on. I'm getting a call from the NSA right now. Oh, they told me to agree with you. They told me to agree with you. <laughs> Somebody actually accused me of that when I, uh, when I made that COVID post, they were like, yeah, but like, you're probably a government plant. And I was like, oh my gosh. really? You're like, I don't get paid enough for that. <laughs> I was like, I wish I'm like, listen, I could not get government clearance. If I tried, there's probably too many skeletons in my closet for that. Like, I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Oh, Back string, to your podcast. String theory podcast. There we are. <laughs> string. So the string theory podcast, uh, my significant other, his name is Aaron Patrick. He is a professional touring bassist. He played for all that remains. He filled in for, if you're metal fans like lamb of God and hate breed. Um, he just got done struggling, uh, struggling, uh, playing with, um, the band drugs, which if you guys listened to Chiodos back in the day, uh, Craig Owens is the lead singer of he's now with reason i said struggle struggle jennings and he just played red rocks with struggle jennings and jelly roll last weekend um so been in the industry for a really long time so we called our podcast we hosted together he's a musician i'm a scientist we called it the string theory um because he's a bassist right and so if you look at our logo it's an erlenmeyer flask and a like a bass guitar melded together and i was like if you don't get a custom build of a bass that looks like an erlenmeyer flask <laughs> at some point like i don't even know you that's ridiculous yes. Um, so it's called the string theory and it's basically he and I having a casual conversation talking about these big questions, right? Like, well, how does gravity work? What do we know about dark matter? Like, well, do stem cells work in the human body or is it just a bunch of bunk science, things like that? Um, so I suppose you could say just like string theory, we are uh, trying to answer all of <laughs> all the large questions in, in the field yes. of science, the fundamental ph philosophic underpinnings of, of what makes science in the world go round. Yeah, so for people who want more of these answers, make sure they tune into your podcast, the That's, String Theory Podcast. Yeah, we're the stringtheorypodcast.com. We're on Spotify, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts. I don't know if you've had trouble or you've broken into it. Uh, notoriously have given us a problem validating our account. Yeah, you know what? Um, when I first did the podcast, it was kind of kind of odd like I had, I, I had to log into my iTunes podcast account and I had to like publish the actual podcast itself and then after that everything was kind of cleared up but it was a weird loophole you have to kind of jump through to get your podcast onto iTunes yeah I feel like the main ones you just you pop them on there and it verifies your account yeah yes. you're good to go and then Apple was like we want to be specific and snowflakes mm -hmm. and we, we want to we want to make it harder yeah, yeah. No, thanks thanks Apple <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Trust me. I had, to, I had to jump to the hoop as well. <laughs> okay. So I do want to jump back to some of the questions I have here. Okay. So you do the 60 seconds of science. Yes. <laughs> that's what, that's kind of what you, I know you're all nervous already. You already know what's coming. My arm is sweating so, right now. <laughs> so we, before we get to that part, I just, I, I do want to ask a few questions for it. So sure. um, whenever you do the, so, so for people who don't know, what is 60 seconds of science? So 60 Seconds of Science was really my first soiree into public science communication. I, at the behest of some of my friends, because I, I used to do like chemical explosions live on Facebook for just for the entertainment of my friends, like literally I have a private account and I would just do like ridiculous chemical explosions. Uh, like li I would, um, liquefy potassium chlorate and drop gummy bears in it. And they have these big explosive reactions. And there's like a bunch <laughs> of CO2. I put like a string of Christmas tree lights in the microwave and fired it up because the lights will twinkle in the microwave. And I would do this for my friends and explain the science behind it. Um, and then everybody urged me like, yo, you need to take this public. Like I show my kids your, your things. And like, you're like Bill Nye, you should do this. And I was like, okay. And then I almost burnt down my apartment during one of these experience experiments. So I took my communication public and just started doing communication rather than demonstration. I found it to be safer for my apartments. <laughs> um, and so 60 seconds of science was the very first 
series in which I did that. And I basically began just explaining scientific questions from viewers in 60 seconds. And the reason it's 60 seconds, honestly, because I'm lazy and Instagram at that time <laughs> only allotted 60 seconds for video seconds. uploads. Mm -hmm. So I was like, boom, 60 seconds of science. I don't have to edit. I'm going to one take this. It's going to be easy peasy. And that kind of generated a cult following and has led to all of these other branches of science communication that I do. That was me. That's how I found you. Uh, you popped up on my Explorer page. It was a 60 seconds of science video. And then I went down a little rabbit hole on your page. Do you remember what the topic was? Oh, no, I don't. Because I, I, I probably watched about three to five of them in a row. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, this page is so cool. And then I, and then I followed you. That's our notes that you worked out, too. I was like, oh, my gosh. She does, and she then, kinda... and then you were like, actually, we went to high school together, and this oh. girl doesn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, she looks familiar. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so sixty seconds of science. I've, since reels have become a thing, I've put a bit more production value into it, and I've now kind of transitioned the sixty seconds, very staccato, quick delivery into real science, which now I have ninety seconds, and I, I have like a green screen effect behind me, so I can show pictures, like the dart program that you were talking about mm -hmm. earlier. I showed, a, I, I did a, a, an episode on dart and I showed the dart and I showed the impact and things like that. Um, so it's a little, it's got a little bit more production value, still kind of. Amazing, <laughs> <laughs> well, the videos themselves are amazing. So have you ever got a topic that kind of just do you, do you south? Like you, like someone gave you a topic and you're like, I have no idea what that is. You know, most of the questions, what I've found in my career as a, as a science communicator is that the questions that I get are, are usually quite simple. The 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 curious minds of adults, it it really kind of regresses back to almost childlike questions, simplistic right. questions. However, uh, the answers for the simplest questions always evoke the most elegant responses, right? Somebody could ask me something very simple like, how do vaccines work? And I could give you a 13-hour lecture on immunology and the development <laughs> of different vaccines and some of the historical landmarks in epidemiology for vaccines. Um, but I'm challenged with doing it in 60 seconds. So right. my, my greatest challenge is not necessarily topical, but it is how do I take something that's really complex? And it, it's really not 60 seconds because I have an outro and an intro. So it's really closer to like 45 seconds of science. Mm -hmm. And I have to present the topic basically a sentence on what it's about and then a couple sentences on current findings and then a conclusion and and we're donezo um so it's it that is my challenge is do i know the science well enough to repeat it to you in 60 seconds because like i said earlier if i can't break it down for a general audience then i don't know the science well enough right yeah so. break it down to uh digestible terms kind of what you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. um in, in an earlier conversation that we had exactly exactly yeah but i, I so, have a cool my coolest topical uh, questions are usually people want to know, I'll, I always put it out there to the audience even still. And they'll say, you know, like, I want to know like a weird medical thing. So yeah. I've done like collapsing eyeballs and sweating blood and um, something called auto brewery syndrome, where if you just intake carbs, it will turn into ethanol and you'll get drunk. Wow. It'll ferment itself. Literally. Yeah. It's just <laughs> this weird, like kind of like strange quirk in the enzymes that process all this and you just end up creating a stomach full of alcohol and then you just get real drunk from eating a piece of bread um wow. so, so i have uh i have those are usually <clears throat> my most interesting are the like strange pathologies that people want to know about so i wanted to ask can you on this podcast do a live 60 seconds of science for the viewers 
So what I'm going to do for you today is one, I want the viewers to know right now that this will be the first live 60 seconds of science I've ever done. They're all one takes. People have asked me if I speed up my videos. I do not speed up my videos. And sometimes they take me dozens of takes because I will fumble my words. My voice will crack. I'll forget what the hell I'm talking about. So I have, I'll be like, damn it. And I'll have to retake it. <laughs> or it's the most tragic. I'll get to the very end and then I'll mess up my outro and I have to completely oh, no. redo it. <laughs> or I'll get to the end and it's over 60 seconds. And I'm like, God, I gotta like, I gotta quicken it up. So this will be, this will be an inaugural first. Um, and you know, I, I was given the courtesy of a slight heads up from our gracious host. And he said, listen, like, if you want to do one, you've already done before, but I was like, my man, listen, okay. I'm not going to give you some recycled content. So for the first time ever, I will give you, I'm going to time it too, and see if I can, cause I haven't, I haven't done a true 60 seconds of science in probably a year and a half because mm -hmm. I've transitioned over to the longer form real science series. So I'm going to, I'm going to time it. We're going to see how I'm going to do first time ever historically live, I'm so excited. live on camera. Um, okay. Today, I think we're going to talk about, um, something that I'm actually, it's going to be included in, uh, I'm, I'm a nonfiction author, in my second book, and this is going to be turmeric. So I'm going to take my headphones off so that I don't blow out the upper level of volume here, yelling 60 seconds of science. All right. I'm super nervous about this. I also can't hear you. So you get to just see me panic and I can't hear you making fun of me in the background. Um, all right. So today we're talking about turmeric, health benefits of turmeric, 60 seconds. I'm going to count it down. Ready? Three, two, one. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to this podcast edition of 60 Seconds of Science. Today, I'm going to be talking about the fact and fiction of the health benefits of turmeric. Now, turmeric is found in a lot of different products today. You can find it in capsules, beauty products, and even food and beverage. But the actual compound inside of turmeric is called curcumin. And curcumin is a very big complex molecule that is said in benchtop studies and animal studies to help alleviate inflammatory cascades. But how does this stack up in the human body? Well, curcumin actually has something that we call a very low bioavailability, which means that it doesn't really reach the bloodstream very well. And the very small amount of it that does can actually get deformed by aspects of the human body. For one, curcumin loves to bind onto metal molecules, which will make it deform in shape. It also changes shape when it's exposed to varying levels levels of pH. And this deformation actually makes the curcumin, the very small amount that reaches your bloodstream, completely ineffective. So at the end of the day, clinically, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that it does any good at all. So at the end of the day, is turmeric effective? And actually, it looks like it's probably just really expensive yellow powder. I hope you guys enjoyed this edition of 60 Seconds of Science, and I'll see you next time. Whoa. My man, that was one minute and 11 seconds. <laughs> oh man, that was amazing. I would put that, like if I seen a professional athlete like perform like a slam dunk for me or like if I watched like Aaron Judge hit a home run, <laughs> like that I would describe as a similar excitement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad that I saw you like, yo, <laughs> with the air horn in the background. <laughs> I had like this grin on my face the entire time. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, this is happening. This is real life. So you first saw 60 seconds. So I haven't done it in a year and a half. How was it? Was it? It was everything I, yes. I wanted it more. <laughs>
And you know what? I I have not even done uh, or like a real science on turmeric. This is literally just me pulling it from things that I've written in, in book number two. <laughs> so. That's amazing. You know what? I actually have. I take turmeric daily, and now I just want to just just yeah, throw it in the yeah. garbage. So the fun thing about turmeric is pharma companies have actually been working to find a more stable version if they can stabilize it in the human body because it does. Uh, it actually uh, helps with something called um, NFKB. NFKB is a modulator of DNA and it helps turn on inflammatory pathways. So the idea is that turmeric, and we've seen this in benchtop science, turmeric will go and it will basically inhibit NFKB pathways. So it will stop inflammation kind of at the level of DNA where, where DNA starts to tell the body to do stuff. It'll just shut that off completely. Um, but what's really hard in the sciences is that what you find happens in Petri dishes does not always translate in the human body. So we've seen mm -hmm. it happen benchtop, but there is very, very crappy evidence to suggest that it does anything in the human body. And, and pharma companies are trying really hard to do this because it would be such a breakthrough if they could, because it's relatively inexpensive to manufacture, right? Turmeric, you just get it from a root. You just extract it. It's got yeah. curcumin in it, but, but it's expensive. Like they sell, uh, Turmeric root, I think, has between like two and nine percent of it is curcumin, right? And that's the actual active molecule. Um, but like to get there's companies that claim to have like 90% curcuminoid in it, but it's like 40 bucks for eight ounces. Mm. And it's like such a small amount of that is gonna make it to your bloodstream. And the one that does is gonna get so deformed, it's not gonna do anything. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I take it every single day. I, I don't know, like, but it is a turmeric curcumin. I, I don't know what the percentages on it though. I, I, now I have to look at it, but I'm going to keep Every taking day, it. Every day, you're going to play like the Sarah McLachlan song is like, in the arms of the angel. Like, is he I, spent the, I spent the money, so I'm going to finish it. Finish it. You should finish it. Just, you know, just to spite me. Just do it just to spite me. Be like, yeah, science. Well, I'm going to do yeah. this anyway. Anti-inflammatory. Yeah, you can't control my life. <laughs> all right. So, all right. I'm going to just kind of name off a few vitamins that I take, and you can let me know if it's kind of BS or if it's actually cool, if it's okay. working. All right, okay. vitamin D, five to ten thousand IU a day, uh, depending you know, on how, depending on how much outdoors I get. Yeah, I was gonna say if you're if you're inside a lot, which most of us are, not a bad idea. Okay, um, ashwagandha, KSM sixty six. Ash ashwagandha, um, anti cortisol. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Is I've it doing start, something? I've started looking into it. the The problem is, I think, really with the source you're getting it from, right? Like, and two, does it do anything? Uh, I don't know. Mm. I'd, I'd have to look more into the clinical studies. I, I'm going to go ahead and say gut check after what I've seen recently and not really. So I will say, or it could just be placebo. Once I started taking it, I started to get really vivid, lucid dreams at night. Really? And I do wear um, what's called a whoop. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this, mm -hmm. where it checks my sleep. Yeah, and and ever since I started taking the ashwagandha, I have been getting a lot higher percentage REM sleep. That's interesting. I yeah. mean, the the thing with the thing with herbal medicine is that um, there's something called the entourage effect in herbal medicine. You hear this a lot, also uh, with like THC users, right? Um, there are a lot of kind of phyto properties and molecules inside of plant derived and herbal derived substances that seem to work a lot better if they have kind of their partners in crime with them, mm. meaning like other molecules that are derived from the same plant sources. Um, so we call this the entourage effect. And um, 
it helps with like binding and things like that inside the human body sometimes makes them more efficient at doing their job. So, you know, it's, it's possible. I mean, there's just so much we don't know about herbal research. So, you know, if you're getting good objective evidence, like I take this sleeping better, you could be a, a case study N equals one that this might actually be objectively <laughs> effective. There you go. Or it could just be anecdotal and just, you know, means nothing. Or you're not uh, telling me you're taking melatonin by the handful. No, the I'm not. <laughs> never know. I, I do not take melatonin at all. Um, <laughs> it takes me a long time to fall asleep, but when I do fall asleep, I actually sleep pretty well. You're the um, same as you're the same as me. It takes, it can take me like 20 minutes to fall asleep. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Tough. Mm-hmm. But when I'm out, like I'm drooling and I look <laughs> like I'm having a sleep, you know, yes. like I'm, I'm yes. sleeping ears. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's 100% me. Um, your uh, fish oils, omegas. Uh, yeah, you know, there, there is evidence there for good, um, like neuroprotective effects and things like that. So I, th- I think that's good. It's a good one. Okay. And then I just if think you're, you're not getting a lot of fish in your diet and that's a good one or like greens. Yes. Hit and miss, but uh, I do take that daily. And then, um, I, and then I take a standard like multivitamin as well. Multivitamins are, are hit or miss. Right. And I was, right. I, I, here's the thing. And a lot of people are probably going to listen to this and they're going to be like, you scientists telling me not to take vitamins. <laughs> um, I am a person who I will always follow the evidence, even if the evidence is, is something to the contrary. Like if someone's like crystal therapy has been shown to cure cancer and I see the evidence and I'm like, that evidence is there. I would believe it, even though, uh, I can go into a whole thing on crystal therapy, but we won't right now. Um, multivitamins are something that I always took because, you know, I'm like, ah, it's, if at the worst, it's just an insurance policy that if I'm missing something in my right, diet, kind of possibly, yeah, fill in the gaps. But really, I mean, if you are getting, if you're not eating like Wendy's several times a day and you're having some kind of fruit, vegetable, some servings here or there, and your diet is relatively varied and you're not like starving in some kind of like impoverished desert nation where you you're only relying on like a single starchy staple. Um, you are likely getting all of your vitamins, um, especially these days because public health officials, and you, you may not know this, but uh, certain things like milks and things like that are infused with vitamins. And that's, that's a public health decision. Like public health officials came together and they were like, we should start putting vitamin D and stuff in milk because so many people drink milk and it's a really good way to like ensure the population is getting vitamin D. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of that that occurs or like iodized salt. Salt doesn't have iodine in it. Salt is just ions. Um, but public health officials put iodine into salt to ensure that everybody had good, um, thyroid function, right? Because that was a, a thing with public health people were like suffering thyroid wise. Um, but anyway, so multivitamins, I, I used to take religiously. I was like, dude, like, look at how I'm so healthy right now. Right? <laughs> this one's got all these things in here. I don't even know what right. half of these things are. Right. So comprehensive. Um, but you know, honestly, I, in looking back, I'm like, I need to actually be a scientist of my word. And, uh, so I don't, I don't take them anymore, but I think that it's at worst an insurance policy that you're already getting everything for anyway, but at best, if you don't have a varied diet or you have some kind of absorption problem with certain vitamin types, maybe you need a little extra kick. Um, but yeah, hit or miss hit or miss. So what, what kind of supplements would you recommend if any? Omegas. Awesome. Always awesome. Um, vitamin D sure B vitamins. Here's the interesting thing about B12. So B12 typically like if you back in the day when we were like pulling out roots and stuff from the ground, B12 comes from bacteria is a really good natural source that, uh, that live in the ground in dirt. 
Um, but we do such a beautiful job of like washing and sterilizing our produce now, even before it gets to the store. Like they do like a, like a pressure wash of all of your fruits and vegetables. So you're losing a lot of that dirt and that natural source. Um, mm. So there's a lot of B12 deficiency that we're seeing. Um, especially we're seeing a lot of B12 deficiency in people that have restricted diets like vegan. Um, so like B12s are, are always pretty good to take, you know what I mean? Not, it's not going to be harmful. Like it's something that gets excreted in your urine. If you take too much of it, there are studies, uh, where they gave people like 5,000% the daily recommended dose of B12 and it did nothing like it's not going to mm. hurt you, you know, if you take too much or, um, so I think B12 is a good one. Um, I said, omegas vitamin C again, like if you're not getting even, uh, like potato skin has a ton of vitamin C in it, random sources. So if you're not getting a good fruits and veggies, get some vitamin C, like lack of vitamin C causes scurvy. Right. And that starts to affect like connective tissue. So you lose teeth and stuff. Fun fact, when I was at Harvard, I was at MGH doing research and every year there'd be a couple of students from MIT who would come in with scurvy because they were living on like ramen and red yeah. and wow. their, their diets were so depleted of vitamin C that they would actually get scurvy every year. It's crazy. And you're like, Oh, freshman, freshman engineering students. I got scurvy. But every time I hear that word, which is odd that I hear it more often than I should. <laughs> yeah, um, I was like, what do you mean every time you hear that? <laughs> I think of a pirate, like scurvy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, that's, that's where pirates so long on the, the, uh, the open ocean and without fruit on deck for months yeah. and they would Just come losing teeth. And yeah. I, I want to say that the, there was a, a captain, like a famous captain, like Blackbeard or something. And this could be completely off base, but I want to say that it was, it was somebody like that infamous uh, that started providing just limes, just had limes on his ship. And like his, his crew was super duper healthy. And everybody uh, was like, what is happening? And they found out that it was the limes. Like they didn't know that that was what it was doing, but he, like, it was something he liked having. So he always had it. And then the crew would eat them and they never got scurvy. So. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. But other, other than that, like, um, you know, like milk thistle, if you're doing any kind of like test regimens or anything like that, things that could be hard on your liver, there is evidence to suggest that milk thistle does help with like, um, like hepatoprotective liver protective things. And they can help um, you poop as well. Right. What's that? The, and milk thistle can, can help you poop as, as well. Uh, I'm not sure about the, it, it might it very well might. Um, mm -hmm. I, the only stuff that I've looked into it about is regarding like liver, uh, but when you start to see like spiking liver enzymes on like blood profiles, uh, the, the milk thistle usually helps take some of those down to a more <laughs> manageable level, but Got it. possibly. Um, so yeah, so those are, those are some of the, the odd ones, you know, if you don't intake iodized salt or, um, a lot of seafood. You can take kelp supplements because they're chock full of iodine. You have to be really careful though with kelp because you can for sure overdo it on the iodine. It's not like B12 mm. where like it's completely innocuous if you take too much. You can overdo it on iodine. Um, so you know, take like a kelp every few weeks. Like you don't need to like bomb it every single day because you can overdo. And that that's one of the interesting interesting things in medicine is that sometimes people come in with real wacky symptoms, right? Like headaches or like passing out or like gut symptoms we had people would come in with and we're, we're racking our brains, you know, like medical students, you're, you're with the attendings, trying to look at profiles and things like that. 
Um, and then you look at their, they come in, they fill out like their patient history and you're like, cool. Like, what do you, what kind of prescriptions or like herbal supplements are you taking? And they just like, when they shotgun blast you with herbals and you're like, ah, I don't even know that modern medicine knows what any of these do. So like, let's stop taking those for a week. And the people usually kick and scream because they swear by them, but then like their symptoms resolve. So there's a lot of things that like, one, we don't know what the mechanism of action of them are, but two, also purity. You don't know. There's a lot of things where like there's been lead contamination and things coming from like sketchy sources on Amazon where you're like, oh, you know, this is all written in kanji. I don't know what it says, but I think it's <laughs> kelp. I'm just going to take it, you know, like got to be real mindful of stuff like that. Okay, perfect. So I do want to hit you off with some questions now. So we got some questions from me personally. We got some questions from the viewers as well through the uh, Instagram uh, questionnaire that I did. Let's do um, it. What I love is a the, question. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the strangest cancers out there? So if that even makes any sense. Yeah, no, there, I mean, there's bizarre ones, right? Um, there's really rare ones like mucinous carcinomas. They affect only like the lining of breast tissue ducts. Like that's like specific, specific, specific cancers. But really what I think a lot of people don't realize about cancer um, is that cancer itself is very bizarre, right? Because the human body has dozens of checkpoints to make sure that you don't make cancer. And there is a daily uh, battle with this where every day there are cells that are like, hey, should I become a tumor? And your body's like, nope, kill switch, you're dead. And the cell's like, okay, bye. So every day your body is kind of combating these possibly cancerous things to occur. So cancer is very weird in and of itself because it's we call it a disease, but it's not a disease. It's just a single cell type in your body, be it bone, brain, blood, that just decides it wants to just make more of itself. It just hits the switch and it just divides rapidly. And the wild thing is in metastatic cancers, right? Like stage four, say you have, um, what's a good example here? Like uh, you've got like metastatic lung cancer. And then you, you say, okay, cool. I've got metastatic lung cancer. That means it's spread to other areas of my body. That means that like, if you have metastatic cancer uh, sites in your liver, you can biopsy those sites. And that is lung tissue growing in your liver. And that's something that people don't realize that those cells, their origin are actually from the lung. Um, and so they have that profile and that's so cancer in and of itself is weird. And the weirdest thing about cancer, I think is another thing that people don't know a lot about is that it's not just, uh, okay, well, I had a single genetic mutation and now I'm going to have leukemia. Like that's, I'm just going to get leukemia. Cancer follows something that we call uh, a multi-hit model, meaning that there has to be a breakdown of several tiered layers of these safety systems. Um, Think of it like getting into like a bank vault or something, right? You got to pass the security guards. You got to pass like a gate. You got to pass like a security system. And then there's a vault door and then maybe a second vault door. That's kind of what it's like when cancer evolves. Um, You have to break down from a mutation standpoint, several checks and balances and several cellular security systems in order to allow that cell to just rapidly divide and just be like, yay, we're going to make a tumor. And you're like, no, don't do that. And it's like, what do it more. And you're like, no, really, please being destructive. Um, so it, 
the thing about uh, like smoking and exposures and things like that, smoking has so many different chemicals that we call carcinogens, which cause cancer, so many different kinds that it's causing all of these different parts of genetic damage and genetic mutations because by virtue of having so many different chemicals in it, that it, that's why it's cancer causing um, because it's breaking down several of those systems at one time, right? Taking a battering ram to some of those systems. And they say, and it is true, if you live long enough, you will get cancer because you are looking at a lifetime of accumulated genetic damage. So there is just a higher statistical likelihood that at some point, if you live long enough, you will have created enough damage to break down enough of those security systems to cause a tumor to occur, to cause cancer. It may not be fatal, but you you will get cancer um, or at least tumorigenic activity, right? Like pre-cancer. So the, I think cancer in and of itself is absolutely bizarre. It's like your body just going haywire in one random area and then just causing you to die weird yeah it's like the body purposely trying to kill itself yeah it's very and then, strange and then it fights it at the same time though it's super strange your body is just like i just want to make like one bone cell a ton of times and you're like really don't do that and it's like sick and it just kind of keeps going <laughs> and it's it's not like it's uh you know, like a disease that you think like a virus or something like where it's breaking stuff down per se, it's just dividing rapidly unchecked. Very strange. So, so why does that become dangerous at the same time? Well, it can cause a lot of complications, like in the blood, you know, um, you have leukemia, right? And this is a, an over proliferation of some of your white blood cells. It will be, there's different kinds of, um, of like, you know, fluid cancers and they can be <clears throat> different cells that proliferate. So it can do things like uh, cancer cells become quite sticky. And so it can start to mess with, you know, your cardiovascular system can shut things down like that can cause embolisms and, and, and things of that nature. Um, the tumor cells, you know, if you have like a hard tumor and you get like metastatic cells in your brain, you know, they're, they're space occupying lesions. So it can be like, like I said, a, a liver cell or a lung cell, which will seed in your brain and then just start growing. And it starts pushing and dividing your brain apart and occupying wow. space. So, you know, you start getting things like during late presentation, like seizures. And if it pushes on your brainstem, your brainstem is, I would call it like the, the central processing unit of your body, right? That's where things critical to your, your life, right? Like, um, your, your heart rate and managing your breathing, like your autonomics and things that are critical to sustaining you. That's where all of that gets processed, right? A lot of your brain, like the cortical brain, the squishy, like, you know, spirally parts that you see, like when you take out a human brain, all the stuff you see on the outside, that's all cortical brain tissue. That's where like thoughts and memories occur. You can actually cut out some of that and you'd live totally fine. Like there are people that have like hemispheres of their brain removed for mm -hmm. cancer or things like that. And they're functional humans, right? They may lose memories, things like that, but they can still live. Um, but the brainstem, you have a tumor press against the brainstem and like disrupt the blood supply supply to that brainstem. I mean, you're, you're gone in minutes. So wow. some of it can be quite dangerous just by virtue of just too many cells in an area that they're not supposed to be. So what are the best preventions for cancer that we can do in our day-to-day -day lives? Sure. Uh, you know, preventing exposure is huge, right? Um, knowing what those exposures are is probably the, the biggest challenge, right? Because there are things in our environment that we may not even know are carcinogenic that are, but, you know, smoking, huge, <laughs> huge, right? Even secondhand smoke, if you're not a smoker, but you have friends that smoke, huge. There's this common misconception today that vaping is somehow 
safer than traditional cigarette smoking. And that is absolutely not the case. In fact, we're starting to see now epidemiologically a lot of younger persons coming in and, and presenting with strange lung pathology that is tied to vaping, right? There are uh, the, the, fluid inside of those vape cartridges is unregulated. The FDA doesn't regulate it. So there could literally be anything in there that you're inhaling and you don't know. You're like, it tastes like mango. It's great. I got it from the gas station. You're like, that's crazy, right? Like you could be, you may as well be sucking on the end of like a tailpipe. Um, You know, chemicals like working with like certain aerosol chemicals or like um, fumes from stains and things like that. If they smell tangy and like gasoline. Like I love the smell of gasoline. I love it. I think that like fossil fuels smell really good to me, like shoe polish, Mm -hmm. but that stuff is, is carcinogenic. You know what I mean? Um, so that, you know, that is prevention from chemicals that are damaging to your DNA. Huge. Um, staying out of the sun, if you wear sunscreen, great, but try to limit your time in the sun. That's unprotected. Don't go to the tanning bed that's nuts. Like melanoma is such an aggressive cancer. And that's how most young people die from cancer is like melanoma related because it's very aggressive. Um, you know, and, and just, uh, antioxidants are really helpful, you know, like protective things that you can eat, like, you know, fruits and vegetables and things like that. These have these really beautiful complex molecules that are meant to help your, your DNA, um, from sustaining damage. Right. Uh, they have protective, they scoop up all of these like radical electrons that bounce around and cause DNA damage. So just pumping your body full of the good stuff, drinking enough water is great. You know, not drinking Red Bulls and all these things that have all these crazy analogs of whatever in them and dyes. And you, we just don't yet know clinically what that stuff does. Um, and I think just being smart in general, you know what I mean? Is, is the best. And I, I honestly think that the fountain of youth and health is physical activity. You know what I mean? Like, preach. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, because there are so many reparative processes that are triggered by a hard workout, right? Your body goes into repair mode and it's not going to be like, we're going to pick and choose what we repair. We're only going to repair what you worked out. It'll repair everything. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Which is why uh, we think people who work out tend to get sick less frequently because it keeps your immune system kind of on heightened alert, right? You have like inflamed muscle tissue and your immune system's like, oh, there's something going on. Let's fix it. But since your immune system is already in engage mode, if there's any viruses or things circulating, it'll just pop those right out of existence too. Um, so, you know, there's definitely benefits for exercise and healthy eating and just don't smoke. Just don't do it. (laughs) There you go. What is the universe made of? Listen, if you find out, you tell me, um, (laughs) you know, the thing about the universe that's going to blow your mind. I love that. We've, we've had a lot of like, I'm going to bake your noodle moments in this Mm -hmm. podcast. I love it. The thing about the universe is that we perceive it with senses that were forged on our little planet to serve the needs of us just surviving baseline survival on our planet. Right. So things like we see a very limited spectrum of color, right? Like the, the electromagnetic spectrum, we see a tiny proportion of like the color that you see, the visible light, visible light is just a small portion. Like you know, it goes from x-rays to gamma rays, radio waves. We don't see any of that infrared, but it's there. It's, it's, and it's the crazy thing carried by photons. It's just what energy are those photons vibrating at? And are they at a certain frequency that the receptors in our eyes can pick up? And there's a whole spectrum out there that we can't see. So there are whole things, world. 
a whole world that there's, there's even, um, there's even creatures like shrimp, right? We're talking humble creatures that have a, an extra photoreceptor for color that we don't have. So they're seeing a whole nother set of colors that we have no idea, nor will we ever know exist because we simply don't have the photoreceptors and thereby the neuro processing to interpret what that is. Um, so when we look at the universe and we say, what, what is the universe made out of? We are essentially like fish in a pond trying to conceptualize what the rest of the outside world looks like, you know, and we're, we only know inside of our little pond, right? We don't mm -hmm. know that there's, you know, a whole, we don't know there's freeways and there's a sky and there's birds and there's a moon. We have no idea. Um, but if I, you know, I mean, I don't know if I had to say, I think a lot of it is just energy. It's just a, it's, it's a quagmire of energy and matter, energy and matter, are kind of the two sides of the same coin. You know what I mean? Um, and we're trying to figure out like, are we infinite? Are we finite? What is it? How many dimensions are there? We don't, we don't even know. We have such a limited, a limited view. So, so I think Michio Kaku said, if, if you guys are spiritual out there, you know, he said that, uh, the universe and the, the vibration of existence and matter is just the song from the vibrating strings that God is playing on his violin. That's what Michio Kaku said. He likes to marry spiritualism and um, science. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know. Space-time is, is strange. But time is a dimension. We know that. It's a fourth dimension, right? Um, but what is it? I, I don't know. It's, it's something we cannot perceive. So that, I hope that bakes your noodle. That like we, <laughs> what we can see is so tiny. And there could be things like monsters and that are like swirling around you right now that you would have no idea are out there just be simply because you, you cannot see it. You can't hear it. Like our hearing sucks. Our sense of smell sucks. Like our, our <laughs> eyesight sucks. We're, we're very feeble creatures. Trying just to enough, the universe. just enough to get by literally just enough to like live for a blink of an eye. And then we're out. <laughs> aye, aye. What makes us human and what is consciousness? Mm, good question. Or very deep. So I think what makes us human is consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there are very few living organisms that we think at this point we can ascribe sentience to. So what is that? You know, the biology side of me wants to say it's a complete luck of the draw biologically. We just happened to evolve a set of meat that could conduct electric signals and those electric signals code to ionic imbalances that code to flickering receptors that we, and we can see pictures in our minds derived from it. That's what the hard scientist wants to say. The esoteric part of me, I wouldn't say spiritual, but I would definitely say like the esoteric, let's think about out of box kind of stuff, uh, knows about like DMT, right? A molecule that floods your brain at the time of death. What is that? Why? Why would you evolutionarily, there's no need to have a molecule at the time of death because the sole purpose that, that drives evolution forward that, you know, made us have opposable thumbs and made us a little bit taller and made us walk on our hind legs. Um, it's driven by how reproductively viable are we? Can we make babies and make more of ourselves? And that's honestly what drives evolution, right? Darwin said survival of the fittest. It's really not. It's survival of whoever can make the most babies in the most rapid amount of time, right? It's it's way less elegant than that. Um, so there's no reason at the time of death, like what 
what advantage does that confer to release a molecule when you're dying? Because you're not going to make more of yourself. You're not going to reproduce at the time of death. So what is that? You know, um, are we plugged in? Is there some kind of continuum of consciousness, right? Because uh, being in the medical field, I've seen people pass and there is this very interesting philosophic fundamental difference just in how they look, right? Like you're talking one moment alive, the next moment they've passed, right? All of the monitors have said this person has now passed and they look different. They look inhuman. They look empty. The, the light has gone out, as you would say, and it looks like looking at um, like a facsimile of a person, like a reproduction of a human being. So there's, there's definitely something interesting there where there is a moment in which the light snuffs out, that sentience gets snuffed, right, along with all of the other biological activity. But uh, I think it would be cool because, right, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So if our sentience is derived from energy, then us dying is not a product of that energy being destroyed. So where does it go, right? Maybe it's a continuum. Maybe we jettison off to another universe and we start a new existence and maybe we've had other existences and that's why you have deja vu or things like that. Or maybe this is the first one we're all experiencing. And then this is like our very tadpole moment and we're going to go on into the cosmos and see it for what it is. You know, there are so many people that have uh, near-death experiences that that claim to see very similar things, right? right. They, uh, or they they do DMT and they say, you know, I, I felt whole. I began to see the universe from an outside perspective. The earth kind of dissolved and I just saw mm -hmm. everything at once and I felt comforted by that. And that's fascinating to me, fascinating to me. Um, so I, I think biologically, I want to say, ah, we're sentient because it was luck of the draw. Like this particular portion of the universe just happened to coalesce in the right way. Um, but regardless of what the answer is, I think that we have been given a very finite and therefore in, an incredibly special reason to appreciate what we have, because like I said, the universe is expanding and it's accelerating in that expansion. So at some point the universe is going to become so cold that life will be unsustainable anywhere in the universe. So this is the universe's shining moment right now where it is possible to create we are the universe right we are made of things that were forged inside of a star all of our heavy elements inside of a star that died long ago and bursted apart and then those parts coalesced and formed our star and our planets and us eventually um and we are the pieces of the universe that get to recognize itself and it may be finite it may last for another couple billion years until we can no longer sustain that anymore so that's why it's absolutely so precious to experience everything, eat the chocolate cake, right? For those of you <laughs> athletes that are following this on a regimented diet, eat the cake, tell the person you love them, you know, go for that crazy job, quit a job that you hate because it's not worth it. As much as I am a hard-nosed scientist, I am also a crunchy hippie from California. And I will tell you, <laughs> enjoy every moment while you have it, being a sentient being, whatever that means. It's almost scary and peaceful at the same time to hear yes. all that information, right? Yeah, <clears throat> it's very sobering. And I stay up at night thinking about things like this, the big questions. And it is terrifying, you know, to think yeah. one day I'm going to die and I'm going to have to do that alone. What is that going to be like? But there's peace in knowing that even if there's nothing, I was around during a period of time in the universe when life could be created. And that's beautiful. In reality, a very small moment in time. Oh, blink like this. Boop. I mean, my, I'm going to just call it right now, 150 years. I'm going to be around <laughs> compared to the 14 billion 
of the universe's current existence mm -hmm. um with another possibly they think 100 billion more before just nothing nothing can can coalesce nothing like matter can't even coalesce together anymore because everything will be stretched out so thin um so there'll be no possible chance of of life evolving and that kind of brings us to the last question of can we live forever is there gonna be a advancement in human science technology to which the dna never breaks down and we can live forever with that said, would we even want that considering the final outcome regardless? Sure, sure. So I do not think that it's possible to live in an organic body forever, right? Mm -hmm. uh, biological bodies are very frail and they do have cellular expiration dates. Because um, Is it true that the telomeres of the DNA determines our age? It's a part of it. Yeah. The, the, so the, if you guys haven't heard this term, the telomeres, I always describe as like the plastic caps on the end of your shoelaces, right? They're like protective so that your shoelaces don't fray. Telomeres are very similar. They're on the ends of your DNA, on the ends of your chromosomes. And, and every time your chromosomes divide, there's a little enzyme called telomerase, which comes on and it, it helps to kind of keep that little plastic shoe cap on the end of the, the DNA, the shoelace cap in, intact. If that uh, shoelace cap gets too short, the body will basically trigger that cell to die off because for the reason, I, as I was saying, if you start to compromise the DNA, you could potentially have ramifications in the future, right? You could lead to cancer. It could lead to other mutations that you do not want in, in your DNA. So to keep the DNA intact and keep it healthy, um, that's where that little, that little telomere comes in. So um, yeah, people have tried to increase the activity of that enzyme that keeps that plastic shoelace cap intact, that telom uh, telomere. And they have found in mice models that they've been able to extend the life of mice. Now, indefinitely, again, I don't think so. Um, now, the question is, when we say live forever, what I do think is possible and what I know research is, is, has been conducted on for a while is transferring human consciousness to a computer and living with a body that is robotic in nature, right? Because wow. those parts, you can, you can switch those parts out. That doesn't matter. So the question is, back to our the question we just answered, what makes us human? And I think a lot of scientists and philosophers agree that it's the sentient part of us that makes us human. The ability for us to have a podcast right now is what makes us human, right? Talking about the big questions. So because the human brain runs on electricity and what ostensibly can be coded to a binary system, can we just exist through a computer and we can speak? Speaking is just a physical function, right? You have robots that can that can orate through speakers and things like that. Um, and in fact, like your speakers right now and radio waves, those are all transferred through binary code and it, it moves a speaker at a certain flux and a certain rate to kind of make the sound come out on the other side. Um, so, so yeah, so I think if we want to live forever, it's going to be our consciousness and not, not our actual physical bodies. I think we'll become like real cool robots someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully I'm still around when that, happens i'll be so able to actually around. hit my bench prs instead of getting pinned under the bar if i'm a robot man you know, so like... many so many robotic prs coming <laughs> oh the ipf is going to be real sad real soon yeah well not only that like you have people nowadays that are getting already robotic replacements in their actual body and you know like my, my older brother he just had a bilateral double hip replacement oh my god how old's your brother oh, man that's a whole nother story right he's 36 <laughs> And, oh my god i can't oh. believe they elected to replace his hip so young oh oh no when you hear his story he has probably the most interesting 
magnificent, you know, triumph, triumphant type of story now. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy, chaotic, beautiful story. All that all kind of molded into one. That's amazing. My ortho background is in lower limb adult joint reconstruction. So no kidding. Yeah. Then you would love to hear his story. I'm sure I would. I'd be fascinated to hear about everything he's gone through at 36 bilateral. Yeah. He just had it done in February, I believe of this year. How's he feeling? Oh man. People love their hips. People hate their knee replacements, but they love their hips is what I've heard. So good. I'm glad that he feels better. Yeah. Compared to where he was to where he is today. Um, completely 180 type of new, new person. I love it. That's awesome. All right. So I do want to touch on your book that you have coming out next year, Yes, which is, there are no stupid questions, dot, dot, dot in science. In science. <laughs> I love the three dots before it says in science. Cause that kind of almost implies that there are very stupid questions out, out there, but yeah. in science, in science, none. never. Never, because some of the greatest discoveries in human history were from just asking stupid questions, right? Like, why mm. do apples fall on the ground? That's gravity came from from things right. like this, right? Um, so the book, There Are No Stupid Questions in Science, it is a compendium of questions that I have not answered, public questions that have been submitted to me over the course of my career as a public science communicator that it, evoke amazing, hilarious, irreverent, disgusting, and sometimes really poignant answers from adults around the world. Um, I illustrated it very sort of creepily in crayon. I wanted to pay homage to the, the childlike nature of the wonder it. of science. Um, there's over a hundred questions and um, it's, it's awesome. It was a blast to write, you know, some of these questions I've been saving for years and I know it's going to be a blast to read. It's been doing tremendously well. It's going to be translated into Korean as well, which is crazy. Um, a publisher in Korea bought the, bought the rights for translation, which is so humbling to me to know that somebody gets to read my shitty jokes in their native tongue. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's basically available wherever books are sold. I'm going to be the, the narrator behind the audiobook as well. So if you're one of my listeners joining in and you're used to hearing me deliver the science, rest assured, I'm going to continue delivering the science through the book as well. So very cool. And when and people can pre-order that now. People can pre-order right now. Um, it is uh, available on Barnes and Noble and Amazon, et cetera. It's going to be released next summer, uh, June 27th. So if you've pre-ordered it, that's when you can expect it to roll through. And uh, yeah, we're really excited. I'm currently, this is actually the very first stop on my eight month podcast tour prior to release. Hey. So you are number one. Number one, I'm setting the tone. You, you really did. And <laughs> honestly, like this is going to be a hard one to match because we're now two hours strong. <laughs> And, and I have, and this could have been like a three to four hour podcast. Like I have so many other questions on here, but I know we're approaching the two hour mark. What are, and so you, gonna, like, what are you going to do? Like you're <sighs> going to bolus all this knowledge. People are going to explode. <laughs> oh, I love it. Like, I would love to have you on again and just go over more. Like when, it, especially like when the book is about to come out, I would love oh, to have course. you come on again. I'm happy to come on anytime, especially if you feel like you're, you're, uh, subsequent listeners come in there like, Hey, when she was talking about the fabric of space time, we want to know more, more about that. Please bring, cause I know you said you're ma- mega space. Fan. Like, I would love it. We can do a whole space episode. <laughs> We're going to, I'm going to bother Neil. I, I found out who Neil deGrasse Tyson's literary agent is. I know her name. So I'm just going to start pinging her and be like, Hey, can you come and talk to us about space? <laughs> that would be amazing. We'll come and we'll, we'll, we'll wear like space suits on the, on the podcast. 
I always said if I were to ever meet Neil deGrasse Tyson, I would buy one of his like his um like star vests that he wears with yeah. his suits and I would wear it and I'd be like, oh how weird we were this. <laughs> <laughs> one of us has to go home and change. One this is so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> So for the viewers at home listening, um, where can people find you on social media if they want to reach out, connect with you? Of course. So the easiest way to connect with me, is, because I have a myriad of places you can find me, is um, probably on Instagram. I'm on Instagram all the time. It is my home platform. I'm also on TikTok. My username makes no sense. It is gnarly by nature. Nature is spelled with a G. So it's G-N-A-R-L-Y by nature is G-N-A-T-U-R-E. Why can it be Leah Elson? I don't know, because I didn't think that this was going to pop off. And it did. <laughs> I love that handle. It's so stupid. Um, you can also find me on my website. That's leahelson.com. If you're interested in picking up the book, you can contact me there. Shoot me an email. I also always take question inquiries. If you guys want the next real science, please feel free to shout me out. If you've got a burning question, happy to answer it for you guys. I love it. Leah, it's been the word, the word pleasure just doesn't even sum up the emotions <laughs> I have. It's been such a fun time having you come on the podcast and just have this conversation with me. I appreciate it so much. I'm sure everybody listening and watching has appreciated it as well for you to come on and just share your knowledge. You are an amazing human. I love all the work you're doing and I, and I hope that you just never stop. And I hope you one day get recognized and paid the same as an athlete. I, shoe deal. <laughs> We're going for that. Shoe deal. My man, thank you so much. I know we went to high school together and I forgot about who you were, but thank you for, for, for giving me for that. It's been an absolute honor and a privilege. And to everybody listening, if you've made it this far, thank you for hanging in for so long. Um, and it's, it's been a joy today. So thank you so much for having me. My inaugural eight month tour of a <laughs> hey yo they for sure probably had to break this up into like four or, or six different segments for oh sure. my god yeah good luck editing this by the way <laughs> i'm probably not gonna bother i'm probably just gonna just throw it on exactly <laughs> like this me for everything <laughs> we'll just put it we'll fix it yeah. in post it's fine yep you're gonna get it raw <laughs> no edits on this one oh all right for everybody god. For everybody watching on YouTube, thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure you guys like and subscribe. If you guys are listening on Spotify and iTunes, you guys can leave up to a five-star review. I truly appreciate it if you guys do. Thank you guys for tuning in for another episode of Fluential and Friends, and we shall see you guys next time.